You can't handle the truth. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger boat. Get away from her, you bitch! The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. To infinity and beyond! Hey, motherfucker. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast. I'm one of your host, Sam Reimer. And I'm Wayne Gretzky. I mean, Manny Manuel. Ooh, don't you mean Aaron Judge? Oh, fuck that. Yeah. Number 99? No? Okay. Nope. Not a fucking chance. <laughs> this, uh, I think this quarantine's making us both a little bit batty. We're recording this on, uh, I was about to say August, Jesus, April 8th. <laughs> Can I get the year right? 2020. It Nailed it. It is 2020. And April. yeah. We, uh, it, it's been a, a rough go. I've, I've messaged Manny both this week and last, <laughs> uh, asking what day we're recording a couple of times, actually. I have lost all sense of time and all sense of self, and it's only week number two that I've been without a job, so looking forward to it. I, uh, I still have my job. In fact, uh, my job is even busier than normal. We're actually pretty close to like christmas level numbers here it is insane it it is i won't lie it's nice the funny thing is as we get a little uh, a personal here is i have a job i'm now making more money than i would normally at this time of year and yet i still find it within my heart and as a person living in a first world to complain about it yeah, yeah. I think I've said the phrase "you poor thing" uh, several times uh, since this isolation started to you. <laughs> yeah, because at least you still have a job. So, on that bright note of escapism, uh, Manny, please tell the people where they can find us on social media. Oh, they can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore Movie, or on Facebook at the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast. They can find us on all those podcast apps, whichever one you choose to use: Spotify, Luminary, Google Podcasts, or uh, even iTunes. So please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on there. And if you are on iTunes, if you have just 30 seconds of your free time, which every one of you has a ton of right now, unless you're like me who still has a job, please take 30 seconds of your time, go to iTunes, give us that five-star review and a five-star rating and a little positive review. It will increase the profile of this lovely little podcast and allow more people to find us because right now people are searching for content. They're searching for things to listen to. Why don't you point them towards the Samuel Emanuel movie? podcast if we don't see a spike in our listenership over these several weeks months whatever it is we'll be very disappointed in all of you i I wholeheartedly agree so since we have a massive episode today episode 99 uh why don't uh we get going and talk about how we've been spending our free time instead of actually getting to the meat of the episode because this episode's going to be like 3 hours anyway so that, it, it's it'll be pretty close i think yeah. <laughs> it'll be pretty close uh <laughs> man what have you been watching with all of the spare time that you don't have well i have been continuing my mcu rewatch and with a little extra free time i polished off 6 this week <laughs> Uh, in no particular order, I won't dive into them too much. I just I want to say a couple things about them. I've watched uh, uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron, Ant Man, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, Spider Man: Homecoming, and Captain America: Civil War. I was 
I wasn't that excited to rewatch Avengers Age of Ultron because I thought, I was like, oh man, I'm, I wasn't a big fan of it. But it was actually better than I remembered. And it does have, outside of, outside of Endgame, one of my favorite moments in the entire MCU. And that's when they're trying to lift Thor's hammer. It is such a well-crafted and amazing scene that reveals so much about so many characters. And I'm just a huge fan of that scene. Uh, I was also really looking forward to rewatching both Doctor Strange and Black Panther. Uh, you and I have had uh, numerous discussions on Black Panther's worthiness of a Best Picture nomination. Or and, lack thereof. Yeah. I, and I was uh, hugely in favor of the argument that it did deserve it. Uh, I'm going to retract those feelings now. <laughs> I, I understand its cultural relevance and the importance it has to the African-American people in North America. So for that reason, I guess, fine. The, the nomination is great. I'm never going to – I shouldn't really be complaining that an MCU movie got a Best Picture nominee. It, if, if there was only five Best Picture nominees and this was one of them, I think I'd have a huge problem with it. With there being whatever there was that year, nine or ten, I don't really have that big of a problem with it. Uh, Doctor Strange was a lot of fun to rewatch again, and the other ones, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, just an absolute fucking joy. Uh, so yeah, looking forward, I'm getting closer and closer to the end of my MCU rewatch, so my friend Holly, that, uh, that has been watching them with me, her and I have been trying to figure out what we're going to watch next, and we haven't really come up with a definitive answer. She does want to join me when I have to spoil alert for I think August when I have to start watching the Harry Potter series. But we have to fill in the gap between now and then, so we'll see. We'll see. Um then I watched, let's see. I started getting a little head start since we're going to be very shortly uh, revisiting the 1996 Best Picture nominees, which in turn means we'll be doing a 1996 year review. So I rewatched a 1996 film I really enjoy by Ridley Scott called White Squall, which is based off a true story of the Albatross, which sank, I think, down near South America somewhere. Um, it's the, it's based on a true story uh, of this ship called the Albatross that was a, uh, I, I, it was basically a school on a ship and these, uh, young men would help repair the ship, learn how to sail it. And while they were sailing, it was also a school. So they learned everything that you would in a high school, but they did it actually on this boat. And then, uh, a, a tragedy occurred. And yeah, it's about that. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's a movie I really enjoy. I think again, it's it hits a lot of the stuff that uh, really hits home with me. It ha it's really about deep friendships and male bonding, and a father figure. And it's uh, it's I I can't say it's it's a movie I really like, but I'd be hesitant to recommend it. Only because uh, if I'm, I, I have about a hundred other movies that I would definitely recommend. But uh, if you ever come across White Squall, give it a watch. 
you might like it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to read a little bit about it right now. Um, I mean, I like most Ridley Scott, and I mean, Jeff Bridges in the lead role seems seems like a positive thing. Yep. I'm struggling to find a meta score on the Wikipedia page. Wikipedia is always inconsistent about that sort of shit. Oh. Jokes on me for not going to IMDb, but yeah, it seems seems like an interesting one. It, as we'll find out as we start getting into 1996, it's sort of a weaker year in general. Sure uh, is. 53 Metascore, by the way, according to IMDb, 53. Um, I would so yeah, I'll, I'll be struggling to find some movies to put on the top 10 that year. Yeah, I've kind of already got a little bit of a list going. It's it's going to be uh, that 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 top 10 list that we'll be doing for that year is going to be loaded with definite favorites and not great films yeah for you and me both yeah uh there's a lot of there's quite a few i shouldn't say quite a few there's there's a a lot there's some really fun movies that year but very few i guess for lack of very few classics so it's i'm i'm gonna be interested in uh what i end up putting on that list uh, and then I decided to finally uh, watch my second movie of 2020. I've only watched two movies of the actual year 2020, and the first being The Invisible Man, and now I watch Pixar's latest entry, Onward. Now, Sam hasn't seen this yet, and I kind of have a bit to say, so I think I'm going to wait until Sam's watched it. It is available not for free. On Disney Plus. <laughs> if you already own Disney Plus, it's free. Uh, no, because you're paying for Disney Plus. Yes, but we're not counting the initial payment. <laughs> when you say it's not free, people think they have to pay additional money on top of what they've already paid for Disney Plus. It's a part of the Disney Plus programming that you pay for. Sure. Let's go with that. Yeah. But in case you can't tell, listener, uh, this was a this was a debate off air that we that we got into. It got heated. It didn't get heated. <laughs> it's getting heated now. It is getting heated now. We saved the heat for the episode. Yeah, exactly. That's what we do. Save all of our testosterone and build it up for Wednesday nights when we record. <laughs> testosterone of two huge nerds yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly uh yeah so onward i'm I'm gonna leave my thoughts until uh, sam's seen it so we can discuss it a little bit we will i i promise you we won't be spoiling it i definitely have some thoughts on the movie uh but i i don't want to skew your ideas in either direction on what i thought of it so i'm gonna wait until you've seen it and then we'll discuss it uh, more on air and that's everything i've been watching sam what have you been spending your quarantine time doing well unemployed life has been treating me well other than completely uh losing my mind uh i did manage to get all the way through ozark so i'm officially caught up with the new season oh uh, shit we, son we sort of refrained from talking about it last week when you finished it we did um d- did you want to lead and just give your initial thoughts uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to talk about this. Let's say for the next two to three minutes, there could possibly be some spoilers for Ozark season three. So yeah. if you don't want to hear any spoilers for Ozark season three, please fast forward. Uh, actually, give us a little bit more time. Maybe give us about five minutes. Yeah. Give us about five minutes starting now. Okay. I'm I'm going to even though with that spoiler warning I'm going to try my best not to spoil anything major. My two big takeaways. Two my two biggest takeaways. Mm-hmm. One is 
Jason Bateman really upped his game acting wise this season. I feel the scene where him and Laura Linney explode on each other in the counseling session was astounding. Fantastically directed though, by the way too, right? Like I I love the way how you, the audience just know that (laughs) they're spilling way too much information in front of this counselor. Yes. Uh, love that. And Laura Linney breaking down at the end of episode nine, which, okay, I won't, I'm, I won't spoil the reason why in case people are listening. Mm-hmm. Her breakdown at the end of that episode was a fucking, was devastating to watch, but as a fan of the arts, was a fucking treat to behold. It was astounding to see what she pulled off in that episode. Yeah, what I what I liked about that entire episode in particular is you could really follow her thought process logically, even if you in that situation wouldn't have taken the same action that she took. Uh, you can follow her thought process logically where she's going through all the different options, yes. all the different solutions to this problem that they're facing. And then at one point she just reaches the end of her rope and she doesn't really know what else to do. And she just, after she's done it, she just breaks down into tears. It's a, it's a Laura Linney is uh, a master as we've seen through the entire series. Um, she, she's so, so damn good in the entire series, but that was one of the defining moments of Ozark so far. That that episode and her struggling with that decision, which as the episode continued moving on, you could f- kind of feel it coming. And you there's just... a moment in in a I think a convenience store or like a like a gas station. Yep, gas uh, station. Yep, where she just like stares out the window and just and you know in that moment she's reaching the conclusion of what she has to do, and yeah. it's it's horrifying. It is. Um, there, there are a couple new characters this season. Um, I liked the character of. Um, Ben, uh, Wendy's brother. Yes, Ben is when I saw him. His intro, his introduction. His scene, introduction's great. So great. It's and great. I loved it, and they did. They had a. His arc was so well done, mm-hmm. and that actor. It really bugged me because I fucking recognized him, and I. I always give myself a couple minutes to try and like, where do I know him from? Where do I know him from? And, of course, if I can't solve it, I go to my always friendly IMDb to figure it out. And he played uh, a major character in the Netflix series Iron Fist. Oh, okay. And he was – it's not that he was bad on that show. That show was just kind of shitty as it was. He was fine, but he was really fucking good in Ozark. Yeah, his – like we said, his introduction scene was really good. Um, But – I mean, I guess we can say he he has uh, he has mental illness in the show. He's bipolar. We've known that for we've known that for several seasons, I guess. And he plays both sides of that really well. I like his relationship with Jonah, and I like his moments where he's beginning to melt down a little bit. Yes, totally. Uh, we're, um, cre- we're creeping in on the five minute mark that I gave people. Yeah. Uh, so we should kind of we're gonna talk if we're gonna wrap up or say anything spoiler. We should pretty much wrap it up here pretty quick. I, I would just implore people to go watch Ozark in its entirety. I thought season three as a whole was probably still not as good as season one, but uh, a little bit stronger than season two. It, I agree. It's a very strong, very strong show in general uh, from front to back. Some excellent new characters. I really like the direction they took a lot of the plot lines 
and uh, some craziness happening in the last two episodes, let's say. There, there's the last two episodes, as always, are spectacular. Okay, uh, I'm not going to spoil anything except f- I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything. I, uh, and then, of course, I say except. Uh, <laughs> uh, still fucking love Ruth Langmore. Yep. Fucking love her. I the, just, the amount the amount of ways they find for her character to tell people to go fuck themselves is amazing. It's so great, <laughs> and I wish I could remember her cousin's name. Uh, Wyatt. Thank you. I won't spoil anything. Didn't like the direction of his character. I was watching through my fingers uh, at the uh, the first hint of that plot line. Let's yeah. say uh, I, that that was shocking to me. Yeah, I. I... <sighs> Oh, gosh. Okay. We're going a little <laughs> bit over than what I said. I, I won't say I'm, – I'm not going to spoil anything because people have fast-forwarded enough. I just <laughs> – it takes it takes the show into an interesting place that I never would have seen coming. I just – I guess for – I guess I just didn't like how it got there. It just didn't seem to make much sense to me why Wyatt did those – went down that path. Mm-hmm. But it, not enough for it to to wreck anything for me. I just like I'm like ah. so that's all. So if that's the weakest aspect of the season, then that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so that's Ozark season three. That's Ozark season three. Uh, the next thing that I watched, I accidentally erased the order that I said I was going to talk about that's this right. before. But I think uh, t- uh, we were going to say I was going to talk about Toy Story next. Yeah, um, you, wa- you watched the entire quadrilogy. Watched the quadrilogy of Toy Story, and I have to say. Um, watching them all front to back, the biggest standout to me is just how far the animation has come. I knew you were going to say that. The animation from the first movie to Toy Story 4 is night and day. Um, it was one of the first things that struck me about Toy Story 4 was how brilliant the animation is, um, the attention to lighting and shadowing and uh and the detail on all the characters faces um little little lens um how how, what am i trying to say animated movies obviously do not have a camera but uh the animators put in all these little tricks that make it look like there's a camera shooting and it just it's a, a small little detail that makes the whole world feel so much more tactile a lot of these little camera tricks that they do Mm -hmm. um so the animation, as always from Pixar, I don't need to tell you, uh, is spectacular. Um, it was probably my first time in a couple of years watching Toy Story 1. Uh, I still maintain, and this is, I guess, a controversial opinion, I still maintain it's the weakest of all four of them. It, not that it's bad. I, it's it's still an excellent movie, and I would watch it any time. Uh, but I don't think the... Uh, with the animation being weaker again it was the first so obviously it's going to be the worst of all of them in in terms of animation because it came first um but the animation being the lowest quality and even the story kind of not being as complex or as um i don't know as adult as some of the other ones one of the things i respect about pixar as a whole is that they never talk down to their audience even though their audience is children they always have big messages and big themes and big ideas and toy story again phenomenal movie in general but of the four probably is the most simplistic from a from a plot standpoint um it was still groundbreaking it's still excellent um and i'll still watch it anytime but when we start getting into two three and four um by the way this is my first time watching toy story 4 since we did our episode on it Mm -hmm. and i have to say i I, i'm liking it more and more every time i i liked it a lot more um 
as a part of the story. My biggest problem with it the first time was that I didn't feel that it needed to exist. It felt like more of a natural part of a series on this watch. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it's beginning to feel like it's not Toy Story 1, 2, 3 and the other one. It's it's part of, like you said, the quadrilogy now in my in my mind. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, yeah, spent spent an entire day doing that and then uh, went ahead and watched Tropic Thunder, which is a comedy movie that I know Manny and I both really like. Um, (laughs) I, I know that Robert Downey Jr. has said that this movie could not be made today. He was Impossible. just on the Joe Rogan podcast. Impossible. He was just on the Joe Rogan podcast a few months ago. Uh, even though this movie is only 12 years old, there's 0% chance this would get mo- uh, made today. For those who don't know, Robert Downey Jr. plays um, plays an actor. Kirk uh, Lazarus. He plays, an Austra- plays a white Australian actor who gets, uh, who gets surgery to make himself look African-American, basically. He, he, gets, he gets blackface surgery. Yes. And... Uh, it's an excellent performance from him. It's absolutely hilarious. It's Oscar nominated performance. Oscar nominated performance, which does not happen for comedies. Does not happen. But uh, Oscar nomination for best supporting actor. I gotta say, on rewatching it, it's well deserved. He's it's... so funny, and not only funny, but good acting. He has to act like three or four different ways through this movie. He has to, as he famously says in one part, he's a dude dressed as a dude disguised as another dude. <laughs> he has so many layers to his character that it's really easy to get lost and he never does. He's always so, so good. And he has such good writing. The writing through this entire movie is excellent. Yes. The, the other main thing of this movie that I love, the oh, other main performance. Please tell me, please. It's tell Tom me. Cruise. Thank you so it's much. Tom Cruise. <laughs> as uh, Is it Les Grossman is the name of the character? I think yes. uh, it Tom Cruise playing against type as this over the top, asshole uh i guess he's like a ceo or, no, he's a producer or producer thank you yeah he's a, pro- he's a produce- producer of this movie company he has some of the best dialogue his his makeup that he has he has like this uh, this balding horseshoe haircut that is absolutely hysterical it looks like he might be wearing like a light fat suit or Def- something definitely um, wearing a light fat suit yeah yeah, it's uh, it, it's all so surreal. It barely looks like Tom Cruise if you weren't looking for it, honestly. And he's hilarious. He he and Robert Downey Jr. steal every goddamn scene they're in. The dialogue in the movie is phenomenal. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more with those two things. For me, like, this is obviously a Ben Stiller movie, mm-hmm. but I at times forget that he's even fucking in it. When I recollect the movie, all I think about is Robert Downey Jr., and Tom Cruise. I and a little bit of uh fuck. The pyrotechnics guy that's also in it. Danny McBride. Thank you, Danny McBride. Yeah. Everyone else that's in it, I barely think I I honestly forgot that Jack Black was in it until I rewatched it. Because yeah. he does not have much to do in the movie and and has no scenes I can recollect that actually made me laugh. Hmm. Ben Stiller I'm not a fan of. He's fine in this movie. I, I, for me, the actual only enjoyment I get out of him, and even then, that's stretching it, is the the Tug Speedman fake trailers at the beginning. I like all the fake trailers from all of them. I the, think I think they're all excellent. Well, I w- I won't go that far. Uh, I didn't like uh, Jack Black's fake trailers. Okay. Didn't, yeah. I understand what they're going for. He's like the Eddie Murphy, like making fun of the clumps, but that trailer didn't impress me. 
but mm. the Kirk Lazarus trailer with Tobey Maguire. Tobey Maguire is <laughs> fucking amazing. The Tug Speedman trailers for I can't remember what Scorcher. Scorcher, thank you. There are it's so it it brought me back to the night the 80s and 90s action movies I grew up on. It was it was it was really really good. And he has this he has this awesome line uh, during one of the trailers. Who left the fridge open? Yeah, which <laughs> is just uh, dynamite. Yeah, um, it yeah. was it, the movie is the movie is infinitely better than it has any reason and any right to be, and it's it's only that good, in my opinion. It's only that good because of Robert Downey Jr. and Tom Cruise. I would I would disagree with the word only, but they are the best parts of it for me uh, as well. If if they if those two performances weren't in that movie, if somebody else was in those roles, because they elevate those roles to another level. If it was somebody else playing those roles, I would I won't lie, I would fucking hate that movie. It would not be funny to me. I've known for some time that you liked this movie, and I have to say it was surprising when I learned that you liked Tropic Thunder because it's it just seemed so opposite to what you would like. It, but yes. Uh, Less, uh, Tom Cruise and Robert Downey Jr. easily the best parts of that movie. In all honesty, Sam, like I rewatching the movie again, I can't pick a part of that movie that I like that does not have either Tom Cruise or Robert Downey Jr. in that scene. Damn. Anyth- anything else with any other scene that doesn't involve them, I can't recollect, and I probably didn't enjoy. Hmm. With uh, with the exception of maybe some Danny McBride stuff. Okay, fair assessment. Um, the other two movies, yes, there's two more. Um, yeah. The other two movies that, that I watched this week um, were both from one of one of Manny's boyfriends uh, in the director's chair. The oh. first of which, uh, well, we'll talk about uh, talk about the second one that I watched, and that's Seven. Okay, uh, I watched uh, watched Seven uh, from the year, I guess, 1995. I want to say off the top of my head, 96, yeah. 95. So, 95. Um, it is a it is an excellent detective drama. It's a psychological thriller. Has uh, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey. Excellent cast. Excellent writing. It is... I forgot just how disgusting this movie is. It, it, it follows the antics of a serial killer and the detectives that are put on his case. Um, and the serial, serial killer is basing his murders off of the seven deadly sins. Uh, it, some of these murders are grisly... Well, all of them are grisly. They're they're all basically bottom of the list of ways I would want to go. Uh, David Fincher is one fucked up individual for for the things that he put into this movie. Um, he didn't write it. That's Andrew wait, Kevin Walker that wrote it. That's true. You just know that off the top of your head, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, yeah, I know that. I know that you're a big Fincher guy, and I, I watched, like I said, two of his movies this week. Seven is. I don't know if it's my favorite Fincher movie, but it's up there. It's you, it's one of them. You've obviously seen it before. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I've seen it. Uh, this is probably my third watch. What about I Jordan? Say Jordan had never seen it before. What was her opinion on it? She was revolted uh, by by a lot of the murders, but as far as I know, she she enjoyed. So all of these movies that I've talked about, inclu- including Ozark, we've been in isolation for the last two weeks, just watching shit together. Um, yeah, she, as far as I know, was revolted by uh, by Seven, but enjoyed it for the craft of filmmaking, for the writing of it, for the for the excellent performances from Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman in particular. Um, nice. But yeah, I, as far as I know, there there was one moment in particular the. Uh, the scene 
which was the murder. I'm not, I'm not going to spoil what actually happens in, in the murder, but it was lust. Yep. The, the lust, the lust murder. I heard her go. I, I heard her audibly cringing. Yeah. As a woman, I can understand why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, so uh, anything you want to add about seven? Uh, not at the moment. Gotcha. Uh, and the other one that I wanted to talk about was the game. Yeah. Uh, which was, I, I can't remember if I said this on air or off, but we talked about it a little bit last week because we were talking about 1997 in yeah. film and the game is a 1997 movie. No, um, yeah. And so we had an excuse to talk about yes. it. And my number and, one. Yes, it was Manny's number one of 1997. So I can't remember if I said this on air or off, but I said, I want to go watch this movie right now. Because, I think you said okay. both. Yeah, yeah, and I, I wound up doing it. So as soon as we hit pause, I uh, walked out into the living room and said to Jordan, hey, you want to watch a movie real quick? And uh, we watched The Game. Wicked. And How was it on rewatch? On rewatch, it's great uh, because, uh, again, I'm going to try to spoil nothing about this movie for okay. anybody who hasn't seen it uh, because, in my opinion, it's a sort of movie that you should go into as blind as possible. I didn't even tell Jordan anything about it at oh, all, really, even better. Uh, before we got into it. Okay, hold but, on, hold on. We're gonna spoil. We're gonna. We're potentially gonna spoil some of the game. Yeah. So again, give us maybe two, three minutes. If you if you have not seen the game, we. I can't remember. Fuck. I can't remember our episode number on it. But if you have not seen the game, I implore you to stop listening to this podcast and go watch it. You. You will not be disappointed. It is. Uh, the the game's episode thirty in the Samuel Daniel movie podcast. Perfect. Please watch the game. It is an un, it's an underappreciated gem of a film. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna potentially uh, we're gonna try to avoid spoiling as much as possible. But there are some things I definitely want to talk about the game uh, with Sam here uh, again upon its rewatch. So please, spoiler, big spoiler possibilities. Give us another five minutes. I implore you. Thank you. You've been warned, Sam. Okay. So, so the game, uh, part of the attraction of the game is that you don't really know what it is. You're you're in the you're in the seat with uh, Michael Douglas's character, uh, and you you have no idea what the game really is. And half the fun of it on first watch is figuring out what exactly what's going on, whether he's getting conned or pranked, or whether this whole thing is real. Um, and who's in on it, who's not, and watching all the aspects of the game uh, that you know are part of it on second watch mm -hmm. is so much fun being able to pick out all these little details. Yes. I almost, I almost wish that Jordan had seen it a time before. Cause I wanted to point out all these things like, Oh, <laughs> that guy's in on it. Like, Oh, that happened because of this, but I couldn't, be, <laughs> couldn't be spoiling it. Um, it's, it's a movie that really lends itself to rewatch. It, it truly is. It's mm -hmm. a movie that, uh, spoilers has a little bit of a twist ending, but it's such a, in my opinion, such a great twist. It, it makes you want to rewatch it. And yeah. uh, I'm so glad you did. What was Jordan's take on it? Uh, I think that it was much like my first take, which is that basically confusion from front to back. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then the ending just wraps things up in such a nice little bow. Um, she, I heard her use the word stressful numerous times. <laughs> it's a very stressful movie. A it lot is. of stressful situations that he's put into. Yes, especially the cab. Yeah, fuck. The first, my first time watching the cab scene, and frankly on rewatch as well, uh just heart in heart in my throat yes oh which reminds me there's a movie high on my or i shouldn't say i always say this all the time it's high on my list of episodes that we want to do and it's a james cameron film called the abyss that i rewatched mm. recently and i for some reason forgot to mention it but yeah. 
only within the last couple of weeks have I have has it been revealed that uh, drowning is a big fear of yours. It is. Yeah, we revealed that uh, in the Titanic episode. Yes, and, which seemed appropriate. Yeah, and the abyss takes place underwater. Oh, good. It's a completely underwater film, and watching it, I was just like, Sam would have a lot of problems with this movie, and I was like, I kind of want to make him watch it. <laughs> <laughs> you're a you're a sadist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that's what uh, that's what you've been watching. That's- yeah, that's that's the the small list. Ozark season three, all four Toy Stories, Tropic Thunder seven, and the game. That's not even it. I also watched a few more movies that I'm not going to talk about because there's a chance we'll be talking about them today. So oh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Wink, you've been wink, watching nudge, movies nudge. that you can't talk about, Sam. Why can't you talk about them? Because today we're going to be going through our top twenty movies of all time, part one. What? the fuck yeah so with our part, 100th episode part with our one. 100th episode with our 100th episode being next week uh we have been planning this out for some time that we're going to be revealing our top 20 movies we knew off the bat that we would be talking about this for way too long so we decided to break it into two parts today we're going to be going through numbers 20 through 11 and next week we're going to do our top 10s so yeah top 20 all time part one manny how long have you been working on this list for I've been working on this list for a a long time. The funny thing is, a little behind baseball for our listeners out there, Sam and I planned this episode, honestly, probably over a year and a half ago, almost like around episode 10. I told Sam, I'm like, I have an idea for our 100th episode. And you're like, you think we'll still be doing it then? I was like, fuck yeah, we will. I know we'll be doing it then. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, fuck yeah, we will. And when I told him the idea... The the gleam and happiness in his eyes was a, an absolute joy. And he's like, fuck yes. And so we've been planning this for a long time. Yeah, Manny's been giving me little intermittent reminders uh, after we finish recording <laughs> for the last several months. Like, hey, just so you know, episode 100, about three months away, you should start thinking about it. And I'm like, damn, are you working on this shit already? <laughs> you are nothing if not prepared, my friend. Yes, I've been preparing for this for quite a while. The The top 10, top 15 for me were pretty, pretty easy. It's yeah. the last five, and in particular, the order that was changed, honestly, countless times. So I can tell you in, in full honesty, if you made me do this list next week, it would probably be different. But the, the, movies, the movies on the list, one through, I would say, uh, one through ten will, would always be there. 100 percent yeah when i when i started composing this there were a few movies that i wrote down off the bat as like non-negotiables like these are going to be on the list and that was probably like 15 movies so then filling in the last five or so spots was was no problems yeah actually again looking at this list right now yeah 15 of these movies were gonna have to be on this list so it's the last five and the order that uh that was giving me the most problems so to remind our listeners of the rules of these things, uh, as we're going through, keep in mind these are our favorite movies. These are not the objectively best. So it's not necessarily going to be like Citizen Kane, Casablanca, The Godfather in that order. You know, this is these are our personal favorites. 
not what uh, the man, in quotation marks, says is the best. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to go in ascending order from 20 to 11 for today. Now, uh, we flipped a coin beforehand, so I'm going to lead today. I'm going to start with my number 20 and work up to 11, uh, alternating back and forth with Manny, and uh, he's going to lead next week. Um, usually, the way we do these things is that if we both have one listed, we'll wait until the movie comes up on the list of the person who has it ranked higher. Uh, but this time, since the episode is a two-parter, we'll discuss it the very first time that it comes up. And if the other person has it, has this movie higher on their list, they just shut up. They just don't reveal it, and we'll get there when we get there. Exactly. Um, we're also going to be trying to do non-spoilers unless otherwise stated. Yep. Is that about all? Did I get everything? You did. You did indeed. Coolio. Uh, yeah, yeah, nailed it. Fucking nailed it. <laughs> so, um, as always, we uh, we like to get a little bit uh, statistical and nerdy with these things. Uh, Manny and I almost, I don't want to call it like a competition. It's almost like a little bit of friendly banter. We, whenever we compile these lists, we always want to see whose movies are like better from from an objective standpoint. Uh, Manny, you're 11 through 20. Uh, have you compiled their average meta score? As I have. Do? Okay. I have, oh, hold on. Let me quickly see. Uh, let me hold on. Hold on. Let's see if I can do this quickly enough. I want to. Uh, here it is, right here. Okay, I have it. Okay, I just want to get my average meta score for my top ten of the twenty tens. Oh, okay, all right. Which I have sure. my average meta score for my eleven through twenty is, in my opinion, significantly lower. Then really, like, yeah, yeah. So, uh, would you should you want me to reveal mine right now? Yeah, please. Okay, my average meta score for my favorite films 11 through 20, I think, is a number that you're you might beat. And okay, it is 80. <laughs> my meta score for my films 11 through 20 is also 80. <laughs> <laughs> We're tied. I don't know if we've had a tie before. I don't think so. Interesting. Uh, I uh, I yeah. also wanted to see... Uh, I'm always afraid about having recency bias in these things. Like, I have this tendency to just go, oh, I watched this movie last week, therefore it's one of my all-time favorites. So I am uh, I was curious to see when the average release date of all of my movies was. Also because uh, you're more experienced with movies than I am. You've been watching them for a lot longer than I have. Um, and I tend to not have a great grasp on movies before the year, like, 1990. So I was surprised to see, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, reveal it, the average release date, again, this is only 11 through 20, average release date is 1996. Really? Yes, really, really. Would you like to know mine? I would. I'm very curious. 1997. Wow. On average, mine are, uh, mine are uh, older than yours. Yes. That's very curious. Very yes. curious indeed. I, I'm, in, I'm super intrigued now. <laughs> There's one other thing that we're going to reveal before uh, before we continue on this list, Sam. Yeah, another little friendly competition. Yes. We were intrigued as to how much crossover we're going to have on this list since it's our all-time favorites. And I jokingly said the over-under on our list is going to be two and a half. Two and a half. And Sam took the over. And yeah. I, I, I think we're going to have more than two and a half movies in common on our total top 20s. Yes, and... I I said under I I have one that I know for a fact is on both of our lists. Okay. I have another one. I'm pretty sure. I feel sure. And then I on the rest of the list, 
only one more. The others, if you have any of these other ones on there, there's another one I feel, if it was on there, I, I'd be so happy, but I haven't heard you talk about it enough for me to feel that it's on your list. Other than that, I'll, I will be I would be pretty shocked. So yeah. there could be the, the, the sad thing is Manny and I have been talking about movies for so long that I think at, at least as far as like the podium, like three, two, one spots go, we probably have a pretty good idea of what each other has. Uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, my one and two. I know exactly what your number one is. Yeah, every, I, it's not going to. Unfortunately, it's not going to be much of a shock yeah. to a lot <laughs> to of anyone people. Who knows you. Yes. So I, I'm, but I am excited uh, to do this list regardless. And why don't we get started with? Yeah, Sam's... we uh, we've been talking for like forty five minutes already. So let's get going. Yeah, um... Sam, your number twenty all time favorite movie. Managing managing to scrape into the number twenty spot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, this movie is the first bit of evidence that uh, we are not talking about the greatest films of all time. Uh, we are talking about our favorites. Um, it is a movie that we've actually talked about on the podcast before. It, back in episode forty-seven, it is the two thousand and nine bromantic comedy "I Love You, Man." Nice. Uh, it is written and directed by John Hamburg, has a Metascore of 70. The plot of the movie, friendless Peter Clavin goes on a series of mandates to find a best man for his wedding. But when his insta-bond with his new BFF puts a strain on his relationship with his fiance, can the trio learn to live happily ever after? So, uh, obviously the two... Uh, <clears throat> Two male leads in this movie are the stars. It is a bromantic comedy after all. It stars Paul Rudd and uh, uh, Stephen. No, not Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Not Stephen Seagal. Oh, almost messed up. This is why I need to write these things down in advance, Manny. Yes. Jason. Jason Seagal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It is. uh, It's a movie that's always touched me. You've talked a lot on the show about how you've always had all these close male friendships in your life. Uh, This movie for me is another one that is about friendship. It's about bromance. It's about being there for each other. Um, On top of all that, it has a number of uh, hilarious side performances. It has Andy Samberg, Jolo Trulio. It has J.K. Simmons uh, and a number of others that give great side performances. I will say the inclusion of Rush, the band, uh, definitely gives it points in my book. Uh, there's a scene where they go to a Rush concert, and there's numerous conversations about them as a band uh, that definitely uh, tickle me uh, to no end. Um, yeah, it, it just has a number of hilarious scenes, excellent supporting cast. Manny, uh, I know that you've seen this one because we've talked about it. Uh, any thoughts that you have on I Love You, Man? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of this movie. While it, it, and, and I mean no offense, never even approached this list for me. Yeah, I, I, I have no doubt. Yeah, I definitely enjoy this movie. It is on the wall behind me. It is on my shelf of Blu-rays. I own this movie. B- uh, big fan. There's a lot to like. Uh, I I think it was actually during this episode that I, fi- I fully realized your appreciation for Rush. Yeah. Des- despite at the time it being in the background over your shoulder in every time that we would do this. Yeah, I used to have a little Rush poster on the wall in, in my background. I don't know where it got off to. I think it got lost in the move, but yeah. yeah. And, and I'm, in all honesty, Sam, I'm sad that I just get to stare at a blank wall now behind you. I, I used to enjoy seeing your uh, your music posters, your band yeah, posters. Yeah, I, in the I had background. a bunch of flags. They're all up in the living room now. Yeah, are they? I'll well, see if I can get something up on that wall for next week. Yeah, some on that, on that wall by your closet and then over your right shoulder. And like I can see something on the wall, but I can only see one side of it. 
There is a uh, a flag for Metallica, their album Kill 'Em All. Excellent. Uh, get some uh, more flags. Time. Get some more stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I'm staring at this big, beautiful movie case behind you uh, with thousands and thousands of DVDs, and uh, there's a little Forky model there. Yep. Doing a wave. Hey, buddy. <laughs> So yeah, I Love You Man is a movie that I've loved for a really long time. Uh, it, I love the the friendships that are in it, the comedy in it's really good. Um, it's <laughs> endlessly quotable. I, I talk about slapping the bass with my friends all the time. Uh, we quote this quote this movie to no end. Uh, I Love You Man is my 20th favorite movie of all time. Yes, also uh, for anybody interested in, it's on a, hmm, because we like to skirt the rules this was Sam's number one romantic comedy. Yes. Which we listed our top five romantic comedies in episode 44. He definitely skirted the rules a little bit, but we lo- I, <laughs> we both love how that we bended the rules because we did it. Both of us bent those rules as much as we could when we did our top five horror. Yeah, exactly. This is our show, goddammit. If we can't bend the rules that we make, then what are we even doing here? Agreed. That's a great, that's a great pick. And Thank you. I... It's surprising to me that I didn't think of that movie to be on your list. But as soon as you started talking, I knew. I'm like, oh, this is a good pick. I'm excited. All right. Uh, Did you want to list off your favorite scene from that movie? Oh, yeah. We had said that we were going to be doing this, uh, even though I don't have it prepared. Uh, I can can get one there. I think... um... The, the scene of them at the wedding where they say the title of the movie at the end of the, uh, Paul Rudd's getting married and uh, they tell each other, I love you, man. And it, it's just a, it's a super cute little moment. And it's uh, it, it's very nice. And then because everything has to be a joke, they go back and forth like this. I love you, bro, Montana. I love you, bro, Chacho. <laughs> they go back and forth. It's a very nice moment. Just out of curiosity, and I don't want to uh, I don't want to tug at any heartstrings. Have you rewatched this since the death I haven't actually. I haven't. Uh, so what Manny's referring to is uh, the drummer from Rush, who was one of my childhood idols, uh, Neil Peart, uh, recently passed in the last last several months. Uh, no, I've not rewatched it, but that's actually not a bad idea. That might be might be something to look into. Interesting. All right. Okay. That's Sam's number twenty. All right. Here we go. Manny's number twenty. I know that Sam most likely knows that this is on my list but i'm i think this might shock him that it's this low and that's and this is the 2010 pixar animated film toy story 3 i don't know if i should be shocked that it's this low i mean i did just watch this movie so (laughs) it's uh it's it's nice that i have a nice and fresh memory but yeah, I know that you love this movie, so uh, please go on ahead, Toy Story 3. All right, this is uh, directed by Lee Unkrich, written by John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, Lee Unkrich, and Michael Arndt, starring Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Joan Cusack, and Ned Beatty. Has a meta score of 90, fucking 92, biatch! <laughs> the plot, the toys are mistakenly delivered to a daycare center instead of the attic right before Andy leaves for college, and it's up to Woody to convince the other toys that they weren't abandoned and to return home. We've talked about this film quite a bit. Sam and I have had numerous discussions on which Toy Story is the best Toy Story. And <clears throat> I did rewatch this, uh, I would say, within the last six months. We did we did discuss, I obviously discussed this uh, way back in episode eight of our top five Pixar films. But this movie means a lot to me. 
I had a, and I'm sure uh, pretty much almost every one of us did, but I, I had, I did have a very strong bond with my toys growing up. Is it partly because I was an only child? It could be. I have no idea. But I'm pretty sure a lot of people had a very strong bond with their toys. So when toy the first Toy Story came out, it really hit home with me. Toy Story 3 is... It's, it was such a perfect end to that story. And like Sam mentioned just earlier when he was talking about Toy Story 4... I was worried that Toy Story 4 was going to feel superfluous. Easy for you to say. Superfluous. Thank you. I'm not even going to try because I can't wrap my my tongue (laughs) around that. It felt unnecessary. Yes. It did feel unnecessary until I watched Toy Story 4. And it does add into the story and provides a nice epilogue for, uh, for Woody. I really hope they don't make another one. (laughs) I really don't. But they make so much money. If they do, I will, of course, be there because they're so fucking well done. But Toy Story 3 completely destroys me not once, but fucking twice. And I'm not talking about like a little bit of a little bit of a sniffle. I'm talking full on ugly cry, ugly cry, needing to hold something against me to cuddle me and to make me feel better. But this the. I shouldn't say that. It's not. In, it's not in that part. But this this movie really hits me emotionally, and we're not going to spoil anything. But everybody knows the scenes mm-hmm. because I don't think there's any other highly emotional scenes except for the two that make me feel the way I do. But yeah, I know. I know which ones they are for sure. Yeah, it's it's a huge tip of the cap to the writers and storytellers of Pixar to elicit such an amazingly deep response from me. From this movie um yeah go ahead oh i just i have to imagine that um i i do know the two scenes again no spoilers but one would have to be um there's a scene involving like a, a, a shall we say an incinerator i guess that yeah, the, uh, the, is probably the gar- on there the garbage and, furnace scene yeah yeah the, the furnace there you go uh and then another one would have to be um the scene with bonnie at the end yep uh, it's funny the former of those two uh the the furnace scene has never really done it for me like pixar always has these quintessential cry scenes the furnace never did for me mm-hmm. uh but uh the conclusion with bonnie absolutely did uh absolutely did especially the first time i saw it um yeah it, it got me for sure i have a note on my notes so my okay. note says it says reasons i like this film and they're in no particular order, but one says Andy giving his toys to Bonnie. Then there's a note on that note, and I remember it. It says, writing that alone nearly brought me to tears. <laughs> yeah, I, that's completely understandable. If I, th- if I think about that scene too much, I will cry. If I try to explain that scene to people, I will start to cry. If I start to tell people the reason why that scene means so much to me, I will start to cry. That yeah. scene is probably in my top 10 most emotionally important scenes in movie history for me. You know, one thing we should have placed an over-under on was how many times the two of us cry talking about our favorite movies <laughs> over these next two weeks. Uh, I would put it at over-under one and a half because I think yeah. this might be... One and a half each? Oh, each? Oh, okay. Then I'll put the over or under on two and a half. 
Two and a half? Yeah. One one cry for each of us. Yeah, I, I think, oh man, I don't know. I might, I might take the over on that one, but we'll see. It, I, I, let me let me put it this way. I would have put the over on that, but you haven't. I haven't seen you shed a tear during Toy Story three so far. So yeah, maybe, I, maybe I'll have to take the under. Well, I I, I don't I, I don't think I think that's why I set it so low is because it, we're sta- we're staying we're staying spoiler free. If yeah. I had to start talking about that scene in depth, it's a hundred percent gonna cry. Yeah. So, but that's that's my number twenty. My favorite scene uh, is 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 the end. Andy giving his toys to Bonnie. Yeah. like i said i literally just told everybody it's one of my top 10 most emotional scenes in the history of film so obviously it's my favorite scene so my uh my 19th favorite film of all time is one that actually kind of surprised me in a way that it was this low but now that i think about it it's really not much of a surprise um it is one of the older films on the list It is probably one of the reasons why the meta score of my or sorry not the meta score the average age of my uh movies is so high uh, that is Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back from 1980. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. I, I uh, like that pick. It was directed by Irvin Kershner, written by Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas. Has a Metascore of 82, definitely respectable. Um, after the Rebels are brutally overpowered by the Empire on the ice planet Hoth, Luke Skywalker begins Jedi training with Yoda, while his friends are pursued by Darth Vader and a bounty hunter named Boba Fett all over the galaxy. Kind of weird that Boba. Kind of weird that Boba Fett made the plot synopsis on there when he's barely in the movie. That's what I just, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm, I hope the mic picked up my guffaw as you read <laughs> I think that. I heard it. Yeah. That, I can't believe he's in the plot synopsis. That's yeah. fucking, he, a, that is atrocious. Doesn't he literally have one line in this movie? He's no good to me, dead. Yeah, that's about it. I think that's about it. Um, Manny and I have talked a lot about the Star Wars franchise in general, uh, but we haven't yet had an excuse to talk about this movie. Wink, wink. Um, Uh, Star Wars is not one of my favorite franchises anymore. I think it's one that I've actually, especially in conversations with you, I've kind of grown out of it a little bit. I grew up with the prequels more so even than the original trilogy. Um, And it's something that I still hold near and dear, and I'll definitely watch the Star Wars, uh, any of the Star Wars movies when they're on. But they're not one of the franchises that I hold in the highest regard anymore. That being said, The Empire Strikes Back is one of these cinematic moments that I wish I would have been around for. That and, of course, uh, the original Star Wars. Um, this, in my opinion, is the best one, The Empire Strikes Back. It has one of the most iconic twists in movie history. I'm going to go ahead and spoil it because it's <laughs> it's 40 years old. Uh, the, the twist of I Am Your Father is... Uh, is bone chilling and one of those twists that i wish i could have seen without knowing it but it's so ingrained into our culture that you can't have not seen it um i think at the time star wars uh especially the first one was just this like cheesy campy fun universe like star wars was never it was never dark and gritty like this coming out i have to imagine would have been like the Dark Knight coming out, like sort of the same movement of like <clears throat> an announcement of the grit, or maybe maybe more equivalent to Batman Begins, because when Batman Begins came out, like that was when people started realizing, like, damn, these movies can be dark, these movies can be serious. I, I imagine that's how people must have felt when The Empire Strikes Back came out as well, probably because it is it is a lot darker. Um, I actually I I made a point of including this in my notes, Manny. Um. <laughs> 
one of the one of the many reasons why Empire is great. I'll uh, I'll let the I'll let the folks from Clerks explain why uh, <laughs> why this is so great. Empire had the better ending. I mean, Luke gets his hand cut off, finds out Vader's his father. Han gets frozen and taken away by Boba Fett. It ends on such a down note. I mean, that's what life is—a series of down endings. All Jedi had was a bunch of Muppets. That is such a great encapsulation, actually, of what makes this movie great. It's it's a dark turn for the franchise. It's gritty. Um, and I think I've talked about this on the show before. It's very important as a writer to have your protagonist suffer. It's important to put your protagonist through the ringer to get empathy. And so that when they get what they want at the end, it's that much sweeter. And this movie accomplishes all that and more. Um, obviously, it has the same cast of characters that we know and love. Um, but yeah, The Empire Strikes Back, I think, uh, holds up so damn well all these years later. And I still love it every time I see it. Uh, I think my my favorite scene of the movie is going to have to be the iconic lightsaber battle between Luke and Darth Vader. No, I am your father. It's just one of the most beautifully delivered lines by James Earl Jones. And then, of course, the over-the-top reaction from Mark Hamill. <laughs> I have to say, in the original Star Wars movies, Mark Hamill's acting is something of a weak spot, but uh, it's so cheesy and campy, you can't not love it. Um, anything you want to add on Empire Strikes Back? <sighs> A lot, <laughs> but you and I will be discussing it in a few weeks' time. That's true. We will be. As we have dedicated an episode to this movie coming up, so I think I'm going to leave my thoughts for then. Cool. I'll, also, I'll, I'll just I'll touch on a little bit, obviously, here. Uh, movie, <clears throat> I didn't get to see this movie until I, I was a, <clears throat> a little bit older. Pardon me. Uh-oh, hold on. Uh oh, man, he's got me. the coronavirus, everyone. <laughs> did you turn the mic off in time? I did, yeah. Beautiful. <clears throat> not for that one, though. Nope. <laughs> My apologies for coughing into the mic. Uh, not coronavirus. I uh, was a little bit hungry, so I just ate a chip, a little too salty, and now little pieces of it are stuck in my throat. Thank you for the update. Yes. <laughs> the And when I say when I saw this when I was a little bit older, I'm sorry, this came out in 81, I think you said? 80. 80, yeah, okay. 80. I was five. So I didn't see this when it came out. I would have saw it probably maybe a few years later, probably saw it around 83, 84. I definitely saw this after Return of the Jedi. Um, the thing I loved about this movie was the first, obviously, because I, didn't, I hadn't seen a lot of movies and I was so young, one of the things I loved about this movie is it technically the bad guy wins. And it was yeah. the first time I'd ever seen that happen in a movie. And I loved it for that. The Yoda is one of my all-time favorite characters in film until until the prequels. Until the prequels. <laughs> and he, in all honesty, his my my legacy with him has been completely tarnished because of the prequels. Mm. I loved him in empire and the one scene he has in jedi i can't stand him in the prequels and uh it's, it's something we can touch upon if we ever decide to review the prequels which will be happening next year <laughs> yeah, next may the fourth yeah next 20 in 2021 we'll be reviewing the prequels so i'll 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 leave my disappointment in Yoda until then because I can't wait to rave 
about Yoda when we talk. You're gonna have to movie. bottle some stuff up for an entire year. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'm a guy. We're good at bottling. I, I I I love this. I love this pick, Sam. Great pick, and I, I'm super excited to dive into this movie deeply in a few weeks' time. I gotta say, you've uh, you've praised my 20th and 19th pick. I'm uh, I'm I'm glowing over here i'm grinning ear to ear you know i I just want to impress manny yeah well i i want to i want to praise you because i know that uh next week there's going to be something on your list that i'm not going to like so i'm you're goddamn right and uh i can't believe you you know exactly which one i'm talking about i don't actually you do do i yeah you do hmm interesting once once you I shouldn't. I shouldn't say that. It's not a disdain. I just don't like it as much as everybody else. Okay. And if it's not on your top twenty, then I don't even know what the fuck we're. Going, I don't even know what we're talking about here. Okay. okay. Anyways, let's move on. My nineteen. Are you done? Yeah, I'm done. That's it. Okay. My my nineteen is a film that I'm ninety percent sure you haven't seen, and right. I picked ninety because it was made in nineteen ninety, and that's Tremors. Oh. I actually, believe it or not, I have seen Tremors, but this is one of those ones I, I watched as a kid with, uh, shout out to Montana if you're listening. It's also my friend Montana's house when we were itty bitty, probably like, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. So it's not one that I'm going to have an educated opinion on. Nice. This is directed by Ron Underwood, written by S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock. It's starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, and Reba McIntyre. has a meta score of mwah, mwah, 65. <laughs> <laughs> the plot, natives of a small isolated town defend themselves against strange underground creatures which are killing them one by one. This film if I'm not mistaken, was my number one pick of the horror films. It was. It yeah. absolutely was. Yeah. Because I remember being absolutely shocked by that. Yes. Yeah. I, I fucking love this movie. I can watch this movie over and over again. And it was only recently, as I was making this list, that I realized I don't own this movie on Blu-ray. I only owned it on DVD and selfishly didn't transfer it over that has been rectified it is on my order list on my amazon list for the next order i make it's on there and it's not one that will not be coming off i can't wait the mo i i guarantee you the moment it arrives in the mail it will be watched uh, that day i the chemistry between kevin bacon and fred ward is unreal I don't know if these gentlemen are were friends in real life. I could probably find out if they had acted together before. Whatever the case is, these two guys playing off one another in the movie is a treat. This movie is having so much fun. While it is listed in IMDb as a horror, it is not a horror. It does definitely have a few gruesome moments. It does have a monster. It is a monster movie. But this movie is all about having fun. This is like a B schlock movie. It is, oh God, there's so much that I enjoyed. But I think one of the reasons that I love this movie so much is it brought back memories of a game I played as a kid that every kid plays. I've played this game with my daughter. It just brought back memories of The Floor is Lava. (laughs) <laughs> you can't touch the floor. If you touch the floor, you will die. And in Tremors, if you touch the ground, you will die. And this game 
made these characters try to figure out how to get these creatures that were underground, how to survive without touching the ground, how to move around without touching the ground. It was, it, I didn't really fully realize that that was one of the reasons I love this movie so much, but it just, it just fed into that. And I, one of the things I always love, I always enjoy about doing movies like this or monster movies is what would I do if I was in that situation? Could I survive the way that these characters did? How would I try and do things differently? And this movie is a perfect example of all the things that you could try to do to try and survive this thing. I fucking love this movie. The monsters are fun. They're well designed. The camera work is done really well. There's it, And I think, in all honesty, one of the reasons that I truly love this film is this was made before CGI. So everything is practical. Now there is some, uh, obviously some some special effects shots with, like puppets superimposed on the screen. I haven't watched it in a while, so I don't know how well the special effects have held up. But there's so many tricks that they did, where they literally just dragged this large thing under the dirt, and pulled the camera along with it, so it looked like something was coming, and literally was just like a, they were just dragging something under the dirt that made it look like the dirt was lifting up. A simple trick. And hmm. it's it it just looks so much better because it's fucking real. You're watching this real dirt just spray up in the air, and it could it could be as simple as just dragging a large rock under the ground to shoot the dirt up into the air. And it's just it's little things like that that just made it feel more real. If they made this movie now, but all be CGI, it wouldn't. It would suck out the fun of this movie. Um. I just fucking love this movie. I, I had such a blast. It's a pure guilty pleasure at its finest. And like I say, with almost every movie I enjoy, this is high on the list of movies that I want us to explore. I may just suck it up and try and wait until we get to the year 1990 and just add it in there for us to watch. Or maybe I'll make us watch it in Halloween this year. Who knows? Who knows? Anyways, Tremors, 1990. My favorite scene is the attack on the Gummers. It's... It's... Uh, just a fucking joy, joyful scene. Kudos, kudos to the attack on the Gummers. I've got to say, we uh, we've so far. I'm impressed with both of our lists. Where uh, we're not necessarily going for home runs out the gate. Yeah, like, it's which I mean, I by no means mean an insult. I mean, my number twenty was "I Love You, Man." It's like we're we're doing our favorite movies. Can't yes. emphasize that enough. And yes, Tremors is a great pick. I love it. Awesome, Sam. Why don't you tell me your uh, number eighteen? My number 18, I think, must have been what you were talking about just a second ago when you said uh, next week we're going to be talking about a movie. Uh, it's Liar Liar from 1997. Nope, that's not it. Oh, okay. Yeah, Liar Liar, my 18th favorite movie. I'm... Uh, direct, directed by Tom Shadiak, written by Paul Gray and Stephen Mazur. Metascore of 70. A fast-track lawyer can't lie for 24 hours to do his son's birthday wish after he disappoints his son for the last time. Sorry, Manny, I cut you off there. Uh, no, I was actually cutting you off, so I apologize. <laughs> I I'm actually kind of surprised that this is this low. Uh, yeah. Considering how much you've talked about this film and how much you enjoy watching it, I guess maybe I shouldn't be that that surprised. But uh, I, I have to say there are some movies on my list, and I'm sure you feel the same. Where in my head you just list like, oh, this is a top ten movie of all time for me for sure. And then when you actually take the time and write them all out, you're like, damn, I have a lot of top ten movies. So this is a movie I usually tell people is in my top ten. 
but now that I've like written it all out, there's there's some damn good movies that I've seen. So um, we did talk about this movie quite a bit last week uh, when we were talking about uh, the 1997 year in review. So I guess I won't go too in depth into it. Um, but it's suffice it to say a movie I've seen dozens of times. I wouldn't be surprised if the counter that I've seen this movie is close to a hundred. I've seen this movie. Um, you know, it, it was always on TV when I was a kid, even when it wasn't, I, we owned it. So I always wanted to watch it. Um, I think one of the reasons that it's not higher on my list is probably just because it's frankly not great from a filmmaking perspective like it's it's a really silly movie it's poorly written poorly acted a lot of times um what sets this movie apart is jim carrey for me um even of course there's a nostalgia factor as well which is a reason why it's on my list but jim carrey uh just from a slapstick perspective is one of my favorite comedic actors in the entire world um definitely happy to have him as my country countryman um but yeah pretty simplistic plot pretty simplistic message it's about not lying it's about the value of family uh the kid gives a dog shit performance as his son (laughs) it's just absolutely atrocious um his ex also does not give a great performance basically everybody in this movie is mailing it in besides jim carrey but i don't care it's it's so funny it's a movie i've held near and dear for a long time Again, I'm going to be throwing the word quotable around a lot, but this is a super quotable movie with all my with all my friends. Uh, The Jordan Vades back swoosh. That's the game. That that whole sequence is just a goldmine of excellent quotes and improvs from Jim Carrey. Um, It's a feel good movie with an easy to digest plot and an easy to digest message. It's a it's a fun little movie and I'll always love it. Nice. I. I agree. Oh, sorry, Sam, you're going to say something. No, please go ahead. Okay, I was going to say I agree. Like we said in last week's episode, I did rewatch this. I I rewatched this, like I said, for Sam. Yes, I wanted which to I appreciate. I, I know wa- you're not a Jim Carrey guy. I'm not a, I'm not a Jim Carrey comedy guy. I'm a Jim Carrey dramatic guy. Yes. And rewatching this reminded me of how incredibly skilled Jim Carrey is as a comedic actor. He really goes for it. This is, I I agree with you. This is a, this is a top notch comedic performance from a man at the top of his game. Mm-hmm. And he fully commits to it. And it was worth every moment of it. It was a, a really great performance. There are some things that, like I said, obviously didn't age well. There are some stuff that was there were some scenes that weren't as funny as I remember them being. Specifically, the one that I remember honestly laughing my ass off in the theater, and then rewatching it now, bare I don't even I don't even think I got a chuckle. It probably gave me got a smile, but I didn't laugh. And that's the uh, the boardroom scene mm. where she drags him in to talk about to to out him for being unable to lie i still laugh at that scene yeah of course you do and it's i agree it really does until you actually said it i agree it honestly feels like everyone else is phoning it in now is it because jim carrey's so over the top in this movie yeah perhaps Uh, when you were kind of uh uh degradating the wife uh i want to just come to her defense in a little bit she was given nothing to do in this movie. No, she's she's wallpaper. Yeah, and but the, the reason to watch this movie is for Jim Carrey's performance. When it comes to comedic performances, 
this might be a top three Jim Carrey comedic performance for me. Yeah, I, I'd say that's a reasonable placement. What, what else would you have up there out of curiosity? If I have to be... On the spot. <laughs> Ace Ventura would be up there. Uh-huh. That's his breakout. And then I guess it will, if we're going with comedies, for me... I don't know. I'd have a hard time because those are the only two that I really like. Did, did you ever wind up seeing Bruce Almighty? Thank you. That's the other one. Yeah, because that's that's another one of my favorites. That's another one that is just excellent, uh, nostalgic Jim Carrey from movie for me. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, liar, liar. My favorite scene is going to be the uh, the final courtroom scene uh, where he's fully accepted that uh, this lying thing is not going to work out for him and he's going to have to he's going to have to maneuver around it and he just gives a batshit crazy rant and tirade um and uh, and a phenomenal comedic performance uh, to lock up this court case this uh this uh divorce case that he's trying to settle um it's it's masterful work and i will chuckle at it every time until the day that i die liar <laughs> liar my 18th favorite movie of all time nice uh, my 18th movie is a movie that we were talking about earlier on, and that's 1995 Seven. <laughs> I know. We kind of gave each other a little glance. Hey? I'm like, anything you want to add about Seven? You're like, no, not yet. <laughs> Excellent pick. Obviously a movie I've seen. Obviously a movie I quite enjoy. Manny, please take it away. Uh, this is directed by David the Fucking Man Fincher, uh, written by Andrew Kevin Walker. Uh, starring Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, and Gwyneth Paltrow, has a meta score of 65. The plot, two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. Like I was talking with Sam prior to recording uh, off-air, uh, this is one movie where I kind of want to discuss some spoiler stuff. Sure. So like we said at the beginning, I might have said, no, I definitely we were talking about the game. I'm going to spoil some of Seven, and I can't stress this enough. If you have not seen Seven, I implore <laughs> you to probably fast forward about 10 minutes here <laughs> to avoid all the things I'm about to say. Because if you watch, if I, I'm going to spoil some pretty serious shit. And the reason I want to is because I really want to dive a little bit more into this movie and talk about it openly and freely. But if you have not seen seven, one shame on you Two, if you need to watch this movie without knowing much about it, and I'm going to spoil some pretty impressive, some pretty important things. So you've been warned, please just fast forward about 10 minutes. If you don't want to be spoiled for seven, Three, two, one, go fuck yourself. I, when you were talking about who was in this movie, I got a little pissed you said Kevin Spacey. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can see that. I, I did know that he was in this movie before I saw it for the first time, and I did not spoil it for Jordan when we were uh, going through it, but I think she knew. I, I think she turned to me at one point and said, when does Kevin Spacey turn up in this movie or something to that effect? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's. It's been so, like, we're 25 years later, and mm-hmm. it's pretty well known that he's in the movie. But for those that don't know anything about When he movie, shows up, it's such a shock. Yes, and it was such a great shock at the time in 1995 because for those of you that 
don't remember or aren't paying attention, he's not in the credits for this movie. Kevin Spacey asked for that. He's like, don't put my name in the credits. Don't put me in the marketing. Let people discover this on their own. And it fucking pays off. It could never happen today in the whole fucking Twitter world. In 1995, it fucking blew the fucking roof off of this stuff. And that wasn't even the big reveal of this fucking movie. That was just the first one. And there's another bomb to be dropped shortly later. One of the many reasons I love this movie, let's start off with the number one reason I love this movie. And that's David fucking Fincher. The fucking genius filmmaker that he is. Who is finally, after far too long of a break, returning to films this year. Now, thankfully, I shouldn't say thankfully. No, I'm going to say thankfully because I'm going to promote the fuck out of it. Is everybody's going to be able to see his movie because it's being released on Netflix. Mank? Yep. Nice. I love that. Yes. Super pumped. Outside of Dune, Mank is, my, is the movie I'm looking forward to seeing the most this year. So, let's... Well, I'll stay on seven. One of the other reasons I like this movie, big spoilers coming, not going to spoil it completely, but the ending. The ending of this fucking movie is superb. What's in the box? Yeah. I still say that uh, to this oh, yeah. day. And, <laughs> and I, you're, you're a delivery driver, so you literally are working with boxes all day. <laughs> yes. Yes. You have a plenty of opportunities, I'm sure. Yes. And in my mind, I probably say it at least three, four times a week. It's funny. And all the time that uh, you were picking up packages from my work, I don't think I ever heard you say it. But yeah. now I'm kind of surprised that I haven't. Yes. Because well, I know how much you love Fincher. I fucking love Fincher. <laughs> uh, the... Surprise guest, which being Kevin Spacey, is another reason I love this movie. Again, if nobody knows that he's in this movie, him showing up without his name being in the credits, without his name being on the poster, without his name being on the fucking front of the DVD box, it's such a great fucking reveal when he shows up. Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt in this movie are excellent. Did I mention that this is directed by David fucking Fincher? You may have, may have mentioned it. This movie is directed by David fucking Fincher. Watch this fucking movie. The plot, (laughs) the pacing, the mood of this movie is absolutely amazing. This movie is so good. This movie is so good, it actually doesn't tell you where this movie is taking place. And it doesn't matter. At no point did they ever reveal what city they're in. No. Nope. And usually in every movie, they'll tell you Chicago, New York, Houston. There's always a little fucking subtitle card letting you know where they are. The city doesn't matter. What matters is what's going on with these characters and what they're going through in all this. It's just such a fucking unbelievable movie. Yeah. I, the first time I watched this movie, I was hooked right from the opening credits. Uh, the opening credits are set to uh, Nine Inch Nails, if I recall. Um, and it's, it's creepy. The, the font is, uh, is like someone's frantic etchings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a batshit crazy movie right from, right from the beginning. Um, the first murder that we see is gluttony and that was, uh, instant, it, instantaneous me being hooked. Like I was just so intrigued right from the get go. Uh, David Fincher has such an interesting way of getting people hooked on their movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, seven's excellent. It's an excellent movie. Yeah. And if, 
people have not turned it off to go watch it, then, well, I can't help you because it is, is amazing. Yeah. Uh, my favorite scene <clears throat> is the drive to the last crime scene. The three actors acting off one another with some incredible lines, some incredible, an incredible monologue by Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Uh, and that's all I'll say. My, if, I'm, if I may just add, yeah. uh, in that final monologue, there, Kevin Spacey is just so reserved and in control the entire time. And then uh, Brad Pitt says something about murdering innocent people and Kevin Spacey just snaps. And yep. he, he just like, you can tell it just completely rubs him the wrong way. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great little bit of acting. Yeah. So I believe we're on number 17 now. We we're, are. We are moving right along. Yeah. But not really. An hour 20 in. <laughs> Uh, number 17 for me is uh, a movie I was excited to rewatch. This uh, was responsible for bringing up my Metascore quite a bit. Uh, it is the 2008 Pixar film Wally. Wow. Yeah. Your uh, list is fucking amazing. I agree. Uh, directed by Mr. Andrew Stanton, written by Stanton as well, and Pete Doctor. Metascore of, wait for it, 95. Uh, the plot diggity damn yeah that's right uh the plot in the distant future a small waste collecting robot inadvertently embarks on a space journey that will ultimately decide the fate of mankind 12 years after this movie is made we are living in this reality it is still one of the best best looking animated movies ever in my opinion um our boy Roger Deakins was actually an advisor on the movie. Uh, nice. He uh, he he was he was a lighting and atmosphere advisor. No no surprises there when you watch it. Um, everything right from the opening helicopter shot of the Earth, uh, just the look of the landscape full of garbage is just uh, chilling. To be honest with you, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, I was talking a little bit with Toy Story about uh, all these extra details that the animators add in that are made to make it look like it was shot using a real camera, which, of course, it is not as animated. Um, Small details like when the rocket is going past the sun, there's a little lens flare, a little like J.J. Abrams lens flare. But, of course, there's no camera actually shooting, so there's no lens to flare. It's one of the many small details of the movie that makes it feel so tactile, so realistic. Um, The first act of this movie is essentially a silent film, which is a ballsy choice, to say the least, for a kid's movie. Yeah. Uh, Wally does not have uh, a, a large dialogue. He can basically say his own name. He can say Eva's, he can say Eve's name, but not even really. He calls her Eva. Uh, he can say the word directive. He has like an R2-D2 style whistle, and he also says, whoa. And that was all I could remember off the top of my head when taking notes for this, for things that he says. In spite of all of that limitation, and of course the fact that he's not human, he doesn't have facial features really uh that we usually associate with humans he's one of the most compelling characters in the entire pixar canon uh he expresses emotion he has personality he has wants he has desires uh he has limitations he has problems he has everything that you could possibly want in a protagonist um and he's a fucking robot who can say like three different words uh that is uh masterful masterful writing and filmmaking if i've ever seen it um yeah, so I think the the inclusion of all those limitations and making the first act of the film silent was a stroke of genius. It has a number of excellent uh, visual gags off the bat. And 
they somehow construct one of the cutest characters in movie history because all Wally wants is love. All he wants is to hold the hand of someone else. He loves, I can't remember the old movie that it is that he's watching in this in this movie, but he keeps watching this old movie of all these people dancing and, and all he wants to do is dance and to hold hands and uh, he's just alone on this wasteland of, of a planet. It's, uh, it's tragic. Um, like I said with Toy Story, it manages to be age appropriate, of course, while not pandering. This movie deals with massive themes and ideas it Ugh. deals with climate change it deals with the role of technology in human evolution it even gets religious a little bit like uh, naming one of the naming the only female character on earth eve is a little bit on the nose with uh, with the biblical reference but all right um it, it's a it's a profoundly deep movie that is directed to kids and i have always respected pixar's way of uh of of sort of <laughs> sneaking large ideas into their kids' movies. Um, it's breathtakingly gorgeous. It's uh, one of my absolute favorite kids' movies of all time. Uh, Manny, anything to add about Wally? Too much. Yeah. Too much. I desperately need to rewatch this now. <laughs> this movie is just fucking amazing. Everything <laughs> you said is spot on. <sighs> God. The My only complaint, and it's a minor complaint... I don't think it detracts too much, but I always hated that they used the real Fred. I I really I always hated they used the real actor. Yeah, like a, is it uh, Fred Willard? Is that his? Thank name? you, Fred. I wanted yeah. to say Fred Ward because I've got tremor stuck in my head. <laughs> um, I I I always disliked it. It it's not it's not too bad, but I, I just it it made no sense to me. You know what? I actually I, I don't even necessarily disagree with you, but I read a note on that uh, as I was preparing for this episode. Apparently, Andrew Stanton's next movie after this was uh, John Carter on Mars or or whatever that movie's called. Holy so he shit, wanted. Really? Yeah. So he was like using like a mixture of CGI and real footage to like sort of prepare himself for that a little bit. I don't know. Um, mm. Or at least that was an explanation that I was given online uh, by by one of the amateur film film critics on there. Um but yeah, I, I can't even necessarily disagree with your criticism. It doesn't take me out of the movie. I think uh, the inclusion of real people in the movie is pr probably has something to do with the fact that the that the gravity of the situation that the characters in the movie are in is also the situation that we on planet Earth are in. Like our our spoiler alert for real life, our planet's not doing so great right now. Uh, so I think the inclusion of the real life footage in there is probably just, uh, probably just used to mirror that situation. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> You're allowed to still dislike it. It is what it is. It, I, I personally didn't have an issue with it. That's my only problem yeah. with this room. The rest of it, you're, you're right. This film is stunning to look at. <sighs> The story is amazing. The performances they pull out of a four-word robot, superb. <laughs> it's just, it's an absolutely exquisite film that perfectly tugs at your heartstrings without getting saccharine. It's yeah. such a great movie about love without getting too sweet. Love, love this pick. Well, again, kudos to you. Yes. All right. I'm glad I'm impressing so far. 
Um, the last thing I wanted to say about this movie is uh, the score. The score is absolutely incredible. Uh, I love the score from front to back in this movie and in most Pixar movies, frankly. In particular, from the time they board, um, I think the ship is called the Axiom. Yep. Uh, the main the main ship that they go to at the uh, in the final act of the film. Uh, the score the second they they board is so frantic and uh, it, it has sort of like a hustle bustle feel to it, and I, I love the sound of it. It's one of my it's one of my favorite scores in a Pixar movie. Is it Giacchino? Uh, uh, you know what? I didn't didn't actually write a note on that. That's actually a good question. I I imagine it probably is um, because he also writes the score to probably probably my favorite Pixar score, which is up. Um, yeah, absolutely incredible. Uh, I think my favorite scene in this movie, again, I didn't write it down. I, I want to be able to pick the entire first third because it's almost like one little mini movie in and of <laughs> itself. Right. I think I think uh, of that. Oh. Is it? No. Thomas Newman. Oh, OK. Um, I think of that first uh, act, the best part of it is when he's showing Eve all of his little gadgets and doodads that he's collected from all the garbage collecting that he's done. And they, uh, he has like a light bulb, a Rubik's Cube, uh, a spork. Uh, <laughs> he's showing off all of these little, all these little trinkets that he's collected. And it's a, it's a hilarious scene. Yes, so, yeah. agreed. Wally, number 17. Nice. All right. My number 17 Funny enough, is a back-to-back 1995 film. Interesting. That you just referenced in your number 19 film, and that's Clerks. Ooh. Yeah, I suspected we'd probably be seeing at least some uh, some viewers universe in here. Uh, written and directed by Kevin Smith, starring Brian O'Halloran, Jeff Anderson, and Marilyn Gigliotti, has a meta score of 70. The plot a day in the lives of two convenience clerks named Dante and Randall as they annoy customers, discuss movies, and play hockey on the store roof. This movie came out in 95. I probably saw it in 96. I had heard all about this film. This is when I was just balls deep into my movie nerdum, I just really started to fully love and appreciate film. I was reading magazines, Premiere, Empire, Entertainment Weekly, anything I can get my hands on about movies. And I heard about this little festival film called Clerks that had been made for $27,000. And I was like, a movie was made for $27,000? You gotta be shitting me. And when it came to uh, VHS... I immediately rented it, and my life changed forever. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen at the time. This movie was so incredibly revolutionary because for the first time that I could ever remember, the people on screen were talking the way that me and my friends did. It was astounding to see. I'd never seen it before. I'm so used to all these actors being on there and acting and emoting and talking about things that have to do with the with the movie that they're in and the plot they're doing in clerks they were talking about movies they were talking about their lives without it furthering the plot because there is no actual real plot in clerks except for this guy has to come into work on his day off that's the plot of clerks that's it and it is fucking hilarious and it's all these little vignettes of this shitty day at work that this guy who doesn't want to be there is the acting good no is the cinematography great might be the worst looking movie i've ever seen 
<laughs> it was made for $27,000. What the fuck do you expect? But this movie has heart. This movie has just, it's Kevin Smith blossoming into the incredible writer that he would become and then decided to no longer be. <laughs> but the other thing it did is it showed that if you truly wanted to make a film, you can. This is before the iPhones. You could, like I could take my iPhone outside, get some friends, write something, and I could probably I well one I could make a movie that would be better looking than what fucking Kevin Smith did with Clerks, because my iPhone is infinitely better than the movie cameras that he rented. But I wouldn't be able to do the dialogue, and most likely, even though while the acting isn't great, he did hire actors, local actors, for his film. But it was so amazing back then to see something i was like somebody made a movie for twenty seven thousand dollars i'm like i i might be able to get twenty seven thousand dollars i could <laughs> i could maybe make a movie i didn't i have... would be surprised if you could make a movie for less these days you can... assuming you already own an iphone or any smartphone <laughs> yeah if you own a smartphone you could make a movie so much for less there's actually yeah. I, I i should i should look it up but there is a, there was another movie that came out around the same time that was made for infinitely less than that and that's Oof. robert rodriguez directorial debut el mariachi yikes which i think was made for about five thousand dollars and most of the money that he raised this is all like the in the legend of the movie and i i'm i don't have the time to look it up but most of the money he raised for his film is him allowing i think he allowed himself to be part of a drug experiment oh my god yeah but one of the great things about el mariachi is Robert rodriguez to help make his movie he made a list of all the things that he had access to so everything that he had access to he put in the movie because he had it so the th things he always joked about that he had he's like i had a turtle i had a school bus and i had a guitar case El Mariachi is a movie definitely worth checking out for something that was huh. made. I think it was made for about $7,000. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing on here. I don't see anything about uh, about what you were talking about with the drugstore. I'm sure it's part of the lore. Uh, it says production was 7225 Yeah. Uh, back to Clerks, though. I, 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 El Mariachi, oh, God, that's a movie I definitely would like to rewatch. Uh, mm. But it's Clerks is so fucking funny. And... While there are other movies that Kevin Smith has done that definitely look better and, in all honesty, are probably actually better films, this is the one that holds a special place in my heart. And one of the beautiful things about Clerks as well is if you ever buy the Blu-ray, it comes with this incredible documentary called The Snowball Effect. And it charts, it charts the history of Clerks how he made it, and how it – the incredible run of luck that Kevin Smith and his producer and best friend Scott Mosier ran into to allow this film to be seen in theaters and to propel him into the, for lack of a better word, icon that Kevin Smith is now. He – it's – in all honesty, the story of the making of Clerks and the story of how it became a film and got – mass produced is almost as good as the movie itself and so for anybody looking for a really great documentary on on a uh, on independent movies and how 
you'd be astounded at the amount of luck that this man ran into. Uh, it's called the snowball effect. I'm sure it's probably on YouTube, but it is on the Blu-ray for Clerks. Um, so that's my 17. My favorite scene, uh, it's the dumb customer's montage in in it. The the back and forth between Dante and Randall over whose customers are worse. The customers in the convenience store or the customers in the video store. I, I love that scene. You've seen Clerks, right, Sam? I have. Um, I, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times before, but I've seen most of the Viewist Universe films, but when I was far too young to appreciate them or frankly understand them. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I have technically seen Clerks, but the same sort of category as Tremors, where I saw it when I was probably like, I don't know, between the ages of 9 and 11, let's say. Awesome. Perfect. So it's it's going to be one that I've kind of been putting off rewatching it because I know that we've played around with maybe having it in the works down the way, but... Um, I think I might just have to bite the bullet and watch. Fucking A. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. What's uh, your 16, my friend? 16 was one that I was cautious about adding because I always feel um, I feel cautious about adding movies that have not yet withstood the test of time. Interesting. But I would be lying if I said that at the moment it is not one of the films that I love the most. That is the 2018 film Eighth Grade. Wow. <laughs> it is uh it's actually we talked about it in episode 37 of the podcast we did an entire episode on it. It's written and directed by uh one of my heroes Bo Burnham. Uh, it has a meta score of 89. Uh the plot an introverted teenage girl tries to sur- tries to survive the last week of her disastrous 8th grade year before leaving to start high school. Man, you sound shocked by this. I I, I for the for the exact reason that you said you're surprised it's on there is that it really hasn't withstood the test of time. I know how much this movie means to you and how much you enjoyed it. It was your favorite movie of that year. I remember that distinctly. And I'm so glad to see this on your list. Uh, I, I'm surprised that a horror film made your list. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because this movie plays like a horror movie in a lot of ways. It's not a horror movie. No, I not at say all. Say that right there. It's a it's an innocent, cute little uh, teen drama about a middle school student. Uh, but it's uh, it, it plays like a horror movie in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, I talk. And boy, does Bo Burnham put uh, Elsie Fisher's character, Kayla, in a lot of uncomfortable positions. Um, Right off the get-go in this movie, she has to go to a birthday party where the parent invites her. This this kid whose birthday party she's going to obviously hates her and obviously does not want her there. But she has to go anyway. And it's at a time in her life where everybody's going through puberty. And she's clearly so uncomfortable in her own skin. And she has to go show up in a bikini to this pool party. And it's just the most horrific her looking out the plate glass window at all these other kids is seriously shot like a horror movie. And it's uh, it's brilliant filmmaking from by the Bo Burnham, by the way, a first time filmmaker and first time writer as well. A fantastic de- uh, debut for him. Um, I would say this is probably uh, the most recent movie to make me cry. Uh, especially in theaters. Um, there's one scene that I've harped on about numerous times. Um mm. Throughout the movie, Kayla experiences a lot of self-esteem issues. She's always trying to construct an image of herself as confident and extroverted when she's really not. And she's trying to she's this movie speaks a lot to what it's like to be a child in the uh, social media age about how you're always trying to 
perform being yourself on social media. And she's always trying to construct this idea of who she is. And at one point in the movie, it all comes crumbling down. And uh, she has a conversation with her dad where she asks him, uh, are you ever sad to be my father? Because oh. I know if I had a daughter like me, uh, it would make me sad. And the monologue that he gives, uh, you, you can probably hear it in my voice a little bit now. It's it seriously, I have to choke back tears every single time because he gives the most uh, heartfelt, profound answer uh, and just reaffirms every sense of self that she has. And they have a, a, a heart to heart and they have a nice little hug. Uh, this this movie also is is funny at a lot of times. I think Kayla is a really funny character. The dialogue in this movie includes a lot of ums and uhs and a lot of awkward phrasing because she really isn't certain of herself and it's communicated really well on the script. Uh, but it's it's exceptionally funny. It's exceptionally heart, heartfelt. There's another scene, a, a truth or dare scene in a car, which is, uh, again, directed like a horror movie. Oh. There's this boy in the shadows who's asking her to do these things that she's clearly uncomfortable with doing. Uh, and it's, it's the most uncomfortable I've been in the theater in a long time. This movie affected me in a lot of ways. I had a lot of high expectations because of my relationship with Bo Burnham's work as a comedian. Um, and I had a lot of a lot of high expectations for this movie, and it exceeded all of them. And uh, I re I I was uncertain about putting it on my list because of how recent it is, and I and I, I don't want to include movies that haven't uh, stood the test of time. But uh, on rewatching it, I it would be dishonest to say that this isn't one of my favorite movies right now. So Eighth Grade is my number sixteen. Excellent, excellent pick. And my, by the way, I, I didn't make this explicit, but I know you know this. My favorite scene is that scene around the campfire. It's one of, it's seriously one of my favorite scenes in a movie in I don't know how long. One, what, it's one of my favorite scenes in a movie ever. The, the scene around the fire with her dad. Yeah, this was one of your picks for when we used to trade picks back and forth. This was an absolute joy and a treasure to watch. In all, in all honesty, I probably would have watched it even if you hadn't picked it because I had heard <laughs> such great things. But I'm so glad. You definitely made me watch it a lot sooner than I had in, had planned on it, and it was worth it. This mil this film is again an unseen and underappreciated gem of a movie, and I wish everyone would go watch it right now. Uh, I'll mention to everyone right now, it is on Netflix now. Uh, it's which is very exciting. I love when smaller movies like this get exposure. Uh, please go watch uh, go watch Eighth Grade on Netflix like I just did. It's a it's a blast. Yes, please. I I, I implore every one of you. If it's on Netflix right now, watch it, enjoy it. You're welcome. <laughs> Cheers, Manny. Your number 16. Uh, my number 16 is a movie that Sam and I both discussed way back in episode 21 of the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast, and that is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Okay. Uh, this was directed by Michael Gondry, written by Charlie Kaufman, starring Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, and Tom Wilkinson. It, too, had a Metascore of 89. Weird. Yeah. The plot, when their relationship turns sour, a couple undergoes a medical procedure to have each other erased from their memories. If you want to hear my deep dive thoughts and Sam's deep dive thoughts into Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, please go listen to episode 21 of the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast. I love this movie because of the plot. This is such an intriguing and interesting idea of, for a movie, and the way that it is filmed and presented to you is unlike anything you've ever seen. I love 
that this movie does not dumb itself down for an audience. And while that may turn off some people, it definitely made me appreciate the movie even more. I've, when I recommend this movie for people, I always tell them, you need to, one, be in the mood to watch a movie. You can't be on your phone. You have to pay attention. This movie requires you to actually be watching it. This is the kind of movie that actually should be seen in theaters, not because it has, well, the special effects are great and it's, it's not overly cinematic. This movie requires you to invest in it. And if you don't, you're going to get lost and you're fucking dumb. I love the special effects in this movie. A lot of them are done practically. A lot of them are done using camera tricks and quick edits. It's a very... Uh, I'm going to use... This is going to sound pejorative, but it's the best way to describe it. This is a very artsy film. It is. And I fucking love it because of that. This is probably my favorite Kate Winslet performance. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this uh, in our Titanic episode. I'd put this above Titanic as far as her performance goes, for sure. I love her in this movie. I love Jim Carrey in this movie. And I really... It really, really means a lot to me on how it portrays love. And the hurt you can have when you've had your heart broken and if this was a real thing i can't even imagine how many people would do it it's mind-boggling on how many people would get this procedure done i like i said in episode 21 i would not do this i there's no way i would do this mm-hmm. but it's such a great it's such a great portrayal of love and this movie means a lot to me and I was astounded when I saw it, and it still astounds me to this day. I fucking love this movie. Yeah, in in the episode that we recorded on it, I told the story about how I uh, I encountered this movie for the first time after a breakup, which th- this movie <laughs> caught me at my this movie caught me at my most emotionally vulnerable. Uh, it, it was I it devastated me in every way that a film can devastate you. Um, yeah, it's it's a brilliant piece of film. Uh, it's creative. It's visually very nice. I love all the practical effects that that are in this movie, and the way that uh, the strange nature of the mind and the nature of memory is portrayed on screen. Uh, it's so creative. Jim Carrey. I already talked about in Liar Liar. What an excellent comedic actor he is, but he gives a powerhouse uh, dramatic performance in this movie and really, really shows off his chops. That at this point in history, we all knew that he had because of Man on the Moon and uh, and the Truman Show. But yeah, this is my favorite performance from Kate Winslet. Probably my favorite dramatic performance from Jim Carrey. And it's, uh, it's a movie that means a lot to me. It's, it's an excellent pick for you. And uh, yeah, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is one of those ones that I don't feel like a lot of people I know that are like casually into movies uh, have seen. But most, uh, most of the snobbier people that yes. I know, such, such as ourselves, uh, hold this one in pretty high regard. So. I completely agree with that assessment. Yep. Uh, my favorite scene is the beach house scene at the end. Cool. Uh, yeah, I won't, uh, I don't want to spoil anything on this one. So yeah, please <laughs> like a lot of the movies on Sam and I's list. If you haven't seen eternal sunshine, a spotless mind, I can't recommend it enough with the caveat being 
please be invested in the movie. Yeah, this put, is not, put the phone down and pay attention to what's going on. Yes, it's this, uh, it's it's a thinker of a movie. Yeah, this is not a background movie. No. Don't watch this while folding your laundry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, For Sam. Sure. We're halfway there. What's your number? It's midnight already, and we're halfway there. My goodness. I know. I should I should have had the coffee. I knew I should have had the coffee before we came on. <laughs> What's your number 15? My number 15 uh, was ranked as my number one horror movie of all time when we talked about that in an episode that I don't have handy right now. It is Shaun of the Dead uh, from 2004. Uh, it's directed by Edgar Wright, written by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg with a Metascore of 76. A man's uneventful life is disrupted by the zombie apocalypse. Pretty short synopsis. <laughs> um, yet another movie to talk about today that uh, I watched for the first time when I was far too young to appreciate fully, back when this movie actually scared me. Um, but Edgar Wright, today in 2020, is one of my favorite filmmakers. He's one of my favorite comedic filmmakers, for sure. Uh, in my mind, he's one of the only guys working today as a comedic director who uses every aspect of the visual medium that he possibly can. He's not one of these guys, and I'm going to just throw a name like Judd Apatow out there, who, I, by the way, I like as a director, but there's this comedic style that's just like point camera at guy saying something funny. And Edgar Wright is so not that. He, he uses visual gags so well. He uses uh, all sorts of techniques incredibly well. He uses crash zooms and he uses uh, montages. And he, use, he, he throws every tool out there at his disposal to, uh, for maximum comedic effect. Um, between this, uh, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim, Baby Driver, he, he's uh, phenomenal. Uh, this movie was uh, <laughs> really fun for me to watch for the first time as an adult because of all the amazing setup and callback gags. Um, everything in all of Edgar Wright's movies really are uh, set up to be called back on later. There's a rifle above the bar at the Winchester that's debated endlessly through the movie about whether it's active or not. Um, there's a, a gag about Sean quitting smoking that comes back later. Um, there's um, Sean's pen explodes and people tell him uh, you've got red on you, which he gets told numerous times, obviously, when he's slaughtering zombies later in the movie. It's it's a real it's really fun movie, but it's not just a mindless comedy. It's a story about a man who learns to make the most of life and love the people around him. Uh, it's gut bustingly funny. Uh, there's a, a laundry list of funny scenes. It was th this was my introduction to the horror genre. It was one of the first um, like adult comedies that I really got and that I really uh, that I really uh, appreciated uh, even when I was far too young to appreciate all the aspects of it. Um, this is one for me that's only gotten better with age. I've seen this movie several, several times and it's still uh, probably my favorite horror movie of all time. I mean, I said as much in our horror movie episode, I think uh, last October, not this past one, but the previous one. Yeah, episode, um, I think it was episode 31, if I'm not ep mistaken. Episode 31, top five horror movies of all time. Yeah. Uh, I had this as number one. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if there's much more to say about Shaun of the Dead other than um, it is a thrill ride from front to back. It is, it is very funny, very good visual gags um, and uh, a surprisingly terrifying conclusion. I guess I shouldn't say surprisingly because it is a horror movie, but it's more of a horror comedy. I would, I would definitely describe this as a comedy first and a horror movie second. Um, it's it's excellent. It's very good. Like I mentioned in episode 31, I haven't seen this movie since it came out. <clears throat> I haven't had much of a desire to revisit it, but I think I need to because I rem I when I when it came out I remember being entertained but not overwhelmed, 
and your love for this movie makes me want to see it again. I think if you like Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim, or, or more specifically Hot Fuzz and Baby Driver, if you like those movies, I think revisiting this movie is worthwhile for sure. Mm. All right. What's your favorite scene? Uh, favorite scene is going to be the conclusion in the Winchester pub, um, uh, specifically when the zombies start bursting through the windows and uh, Sean has to... Uh, <coughs> Sean is holding the rifle and is the one shooting. He's an untrained shooter, and all of his friends are screaming uh, at him to shoot different zombies, and they're they're giving him uh, different directions and different times, and he's getting confused. And it's I, I can't I can't explain most of the gags in this uh, in this movie because most of them are so visual. But uh, yeah, the the conclusion in the Winchester pub. Awesome. <clears throat> uh, what was the Metascore in this one? I gotta see if I can beat it. Uh, Metascore is seventy six. All 76. right. All right. Okay. So it's, you don't have to take my word for it. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. As we reach the midway point, my number 15 is a movie that we talked about recently in episode 88. And that's 2010's The Town. Directed by Ben Affleck, written by Peter Craig and Ben Affleck, starring Ben Affleck, Jeremy Renner, Rebecca Hall, and John Hamm. It has a meta score of 74. God damn it. <laughs> Plot. A longtime thief planning his next job tries to balance his feelings for a bank manager connected to an earlier heist and a hell-bent FBI agent looking to bring him and his crew down. <laughs> I love this movie. This movie has so many things going for it that I love. But the reason to watch The Town is for Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner... I... I hate to use this, the, the term scene stealer because it makes it seem, when I think of that, it, it almost feels like it's almost like a comedic thing, like someone that always kind of steals the scene away. It's not that he steals the scene away. It's that Jeremy Renner is fucking riveting in this performance. It is an absolute astonishing performance, and I wish I could remember who he lost Best Supporting Actor to in that year. Sam will look it up for me as I continue to, to blabber Indeed. on. Uh, ben Affleck, the director, is somebody I thoroughly enjoy. He's directed four films. Two of them, I this one I fucking love. Two other ones I really enjoy. And then one was kind of a dud. And this is him at his best, in my opinion. I also like him as an actor in this movie. He really downplays the Ben Affleck persona, that cocky, cocksure, charismatic person that he comes across to uh, as, uh, as an actor and as a person. In this movie, he's very sullen. He's in control. He's more reserved. It's a really great subtle performance from Affleck in this movie. You have the person that he lost to? Yeah, uh, Jeremy Renner lost Best Supporting Actor in 2010 to Christian Bale for The Fighter. Oh, fuck. Okay. God damn it. Dude, who are the other nominees that year? Uh, John Hawks, Winter's Bone, oh, Mark God. Ruffalo, The Kids Are Alright, Jeffrey Rush, The King's Speech. Son of a bitch. That's a fucking stacked year. Okay. <laughs> I don't I don't mind the loss because ba- have you seen The Fighter? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> Is that going on the list? Mm, no, it's a Best Picture nominee. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, 
obviously one of the reasons I love the town is Fenway Park. Fenway fucking Park. Fenway fucking Park. <laughs> and the city of Boston itself, which holds for anybody that knows me even a little bit, know holds a special place in my heart. The action, the setting, the fucking movie is an absolute joy to watch. There's a small role played by the great late Pete Postlewaite, and everybody in this movie is just superb. It's there's almost like no underwritten roles in this movie. There's and there's nobody at any point that's phoning it in. In fact, you get a jaw-droppingly great performance. From, fuck, I can't remember the girl's name. Rebecca Hall. Nope. The other one. Uh, Blake Lively. Thank you. She is unbelievably good in this movie. Everybody is unbelievably good in this movie. I love the town. If you want to hear my more in-depth thoughts and Sam's thoughts as well on the town, listen to episode 88 or possibly later on either today or next week. Because I think possibly a little bit of a hint. I'm I'm, I'm fairly confident this is on his list. This is the one. I I will not be saying anything to confirm or deny that statement, Manny. Yeah, I and I love it. I love that you (laughs) won't. But this this is the one that I felt pretty confident will be on your list. But you're not going to give it away right now. My favorite scene is obviously the Fenway heist. Yeah, um, as we talked about in episode 88, it's brilliant film front to back. I think, um, yeah, the Fenway heist is one of the most exciting moments in a film that we've talked about recently. It, it always has stuck with me. Yeah, and yeah, Jeremy yeah. Renner's performance, as you said. Oh, I could go on and on about Jeremy Renner, which I did in episode 88. Go listen to me. And Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Boston. Yes. Uh, my 14th favorite film of all time is one that we have discussed before, but not in one episode. Uh, we discussed the original Hong Kong version of it, but not the Americanized one. That is the 2006 film, The Departed. The Departed. <laughs> it's directed by Martin Scorsese, written by William Monaghan, with a metascore of 85. Uh, an undercover cop and a mole in the police attempt to identify each other while infiltrating the Irish gang in Boston. Uh, I say this every time I watch this movie. I forget how funny it is. Uh, it, it's a very serious movie, of course. It, it deals with gang violence. It deals with murder and and uh, uh, drug dealing and uh, all sorts of things. But it, it's actually an exceptionally funny uh, movie. Uh, the, the parts are also well written. Mark Wahlberg got a nomination for Best Supporting Actor for this movie, which I completely disagree with. I don't think he should have gotten nominated <laughs> because his performance is not the great thing about that character. The writing of it is. Sergeant Sergeant Dignam is one of the funniest characters in a serious movie that I've ever seen. Um, on that note, star-studded cast in this movie. You got Matt oh, Damon, you, wow. you got Leo, you got Jack Nicholson, you got Marky Mark. Um, it, it's, you know, take your pick of the litter. They give a fantastic performance. Just absolutely spectacular from top to bottom. The cat and mouse game that takes place between uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character and Matt Damon are uh, it's it's spectacular. There's a number of excellent scenes of them 
almost finding each other out uh, and then falling just short. There's one that uh, uh, there's a foot chase outside of a of a porno theater uh, that is really good that that spills into some back alleyways where neither really sees each other's face um, and they're they're trying to identify each other and it's uh, it's really well directed and really well done. Um, there's a couple of rooftop scenes. Again, I'm going to do my best to not spoil this movie, but there's a rooftop conversation between Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Sheen uh, that is uh, (laughs) some of the most... tense filmmaking you can possibly ask for uh it is it is absolutely great uh it's a movie that deals with uh the concept of identity and lying and uh dishonesty and uh putting on putting on a facade and it is so much fun to see these two brilliant men uh try to figure out uh the best way to expose the other before before uh they get made first um, there's twists and turns around every corner. There's spectacular performances. There's spe- spectacular writing. It takes place in the city of Baston. Uh, I don't know what else you could possibly hope for in a crime movie. It's it, This is one that I've loved for a long, long time, as is the case with a lot of the movies on my list. Uh, Manny, any thoughts on The Departed? Yeah, I, I obviously like this movie... Not just because... Actually, not because it's set in Boston, because Boston... While it plays a a fairly important part in the movie, it's it is a remake of a movie that you and I did just discuss uh, called Infernal Affairs, a Hong Kong film that I fucking love. This this movie is is really good, and I'm I would be surprised if anybody listening to this podcast hasn't seen it. Um, but again, like I've said with the other ones, they should definitely check it out. While it's sad that this is the movie Scorsese wins best director for I don't feel this is probably even Scorsese's in his top five but Hmm. we're talking about Martin Scorsese here so it that's a it's a pretty long list of a man who makes absolutely incredible films that's not to say I didn't like The Departed or anything like that I just it's sad that this is the movie he got his award for but that was a really weak year uh, I have to imagine the film you'd rather win for would be Goodfellas, right? Probably Taxi Driver if I had to pick one, or Raging mm-hmm. Bull. Goodfellas, oh, yeah. Goodfellas would be up there, but Taxi Driver or Raging Bull would probably I'd probably pick over top of it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I don't really have a lot else to say about The Departed. Um, it's a movie that people should definitely check out uh, because if you don't know anything really about how the movie winds up. It is a thrill ride from front to back. I've seen this movie dozens of times, and it's still a thrill ride from front to back. Um, there's a couple of moments towards the end that make me hold my breath every time. Um, I, I think the character of uh, Sergeant Dignum, even though he's a complete ass, is really good comic relief. He's one of my favorite characters in the movie, um, in spite of not being deserving of an Oscar nom, in my opinion, for Mark Wahlberg. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's so much to like about this movie. Yeah, I agree. Great film. Great pick. Cool. All right. My number 14 is a movie that I know for a fact that Sam has not seen. This is also the movie that completely skews every metric we have because this movie is very old and it has the highest Metascore rating I've ever seen. This is ninth. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Sam. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, right? That is correct. Okay. <laughs> this is 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. 
Uh, it's directed by Sir David Lean, written by Robert Bolt, based off the T.E. Lawrence writings, uh, starring Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, Alec Guinness, and Anthony Quinn. It has a meta score of, are you ready, Sam? I am ready. 100. No way. Fuck you. <laughs> yep. What? Yeah. 100. Not one person found one fault with this movie. There's no fault to be found in this film, my friend. Well, now I've got to see it. All right. Uh, it's the plot, the story of T.E. Lawrence, an English officer who successfully united and led the diverse, often warring Arab tribes during World War One in order to fight the Turks. This is based off a true story, obviously. This movie is absolutely gorgeous. Sam, the only thing I ask is if you definitely want to check this movie out, I'm, I'm begging you to just hold off. Hold off until the theaters get reopened because I am promising you that if any Calgary Cineplex theater or if it ever is showing in Calgary, I will do everything in my power to drive there, to watch it with you, and to do a podcast on it afterwards. That, you got yourself a date, my friend. This this is one of the few movies I would beg everybody to wait as long as they possibly can in the hopes to see it on the big screen. I've seen it on the I've seen it on my TV on a on a big TV several times, but I think it was about maybe seven eight years ago I saw that it was playing down in Vancouver at the Colossus. I think it was at the Colossus or maybe at. Um, at the Silver City in Coquitlam. Either way, me and my wife drove down there, and I will always be thankful to Julie for, well, many of the things she did, besides give me an absolutely gorgeous daughter, but <laughs> she was so incredibly open and willing to indulge me in these things. She came down with me, and we spent the whole day at the theater. We saw three movies that day. She did fall asleep in the third one. <laughs> But we went and saw Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen, and it is, it's worth the wait. And that, for, for Julie, that was the first time she ever saw it. And she's not a cinephile. She just likes movies. But she was always open to being introduced to new things. And she told me, she's like, I'm so glad I got to see this on the big screen. She's like, I understand why you wanted, to, wanted me to see it in a theater instead of on our TV at home. This movie is fucking majestic. I can't talk enough about how great the cinematography and the landscape in this movie is. It is fucking breathtaking what they do with the camera and the way that they film the desert in there. Peter O'Toole gives the performance of a lifetime, and if I'm not mistaken, a lot of people consider this one of the greatest performances ever put to film. Omar Sharif in this movie is spectacular. This is one of my favorite scores. I fucking love the score to this movie. I listen to it often. The scope of this film and the performances of everybody, sadly, as much as I like to really rant on about the performances, this is at the time in 1962 when they had white people playing people of ethnicity. So you have Alec Guinness... Yes, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi playing an Arab chief. You have Anthony Quinn, an Italian man, playing an Arab chief. So you do have two white guys playing Middle Eastern men, but come on, it's Sir Alec Guinness. The man could play anything he wanted. The man was a fucking genius. I fucking love this movie, and in fact, just talking about it now 
makes me want to watch it again. I just watched it maybe a few weeks ago. This is on Netflix. I regret saying that because I don't want people to watch it on their TVs. But if they don't have the patience to watch it, please check it out. With this warning, I'm pretty sure it's close to four hours long. Yeah, I'm looking at the runtime right now. It says 180 minutes or 222 minutes. Interesting. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Lawrence of Arabia is Steven Spielberg's favorite movie. And it's when you watch it, you can see why it's such a, it's just, it's a, it's a fucking amazing movie. I love this movie. And despite its length, I can watch this movie over and over and over again. Um, yeah. Uh, Film director Steven Spielberg considers this his favorite film of all time and the one that inspired him to become a filmmaker. It's not surprising. Not surprising yeah. at all. Uh, while I would like to dive into it more, I'm going to save it for in the hopes that one day Sam and I will be able to see this film in the theater and then discuss it. Uh, so I'll just leave it at this. My favorite scene, it is a very famous scene. It's Omar Sharif's entrance into the movie. And when you see it, it's, it's, a, it's a great cinematic moment. And then if you just take a moment to try and think about how did they actually fucking do it, it astounds you even more. My number 14, Lawrence of Arabia. All right. Um, my number 13 movie uh, is one that I'm sure will come, probably come as a shock to you. Uh, and also excuse me, uh, this, this is the movie that is solely responsible for allowing the average age of my movies to, uh, to be older than yours. Uh, the 1946 film. Holy fuck. It's a wonderful life. (gasps) Oh, I fucking love you. (laughs) Directed by Frank Capra, written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra, with a Metascore of 89. Uh, An angel is sent from heaven to help a desperately frustrated businessman by showing him what life would have been like if he never existed. Um, This is a movie that I... I, I won't say I watched this every Christmas as a kid. I watched it sporadically. I was probably, as a really young one, a little bit too antsy to sit through a, a two-hour black and white movie. Um, but it, it only recently, for me, became a favorite. Um, this movie is overly optimistic. It's cheesy. It's sappy. And I, I love every second of it. Uh, Jimmy Stewart gives an iconic performance. Oh. I love I love the cliche 40s fast talking dialect that he has going on. Um, it, this is a movie that will uh, restore your faith in mankind if you have lost it. Uh, it is a movie that is hopelessly optimistic oh about God, yes. friendship and relationships and the nature of life and the nature of everything. Uh, it is it is so cheesy and it. Uh, I have to admit, uh, I moved away from home about two and a half years ago, and I would say that's probably the moment it got catapulted from uh, seasonal favorite to all-time favorite for me because uh, since moving away from home, the ending uh, hits incredibly hard uh, when he reads the, when he reads the note that says no man is poor who has friends. Uh, I, I get a little misty. I'm not going to lie to you. And it, it's so it's so stupid. It's cheesy. It's optimistic. But man, it it uh, this movie has become just an emotional favorite of mine it uh it when you need to have 
a little pick me up, especially around the holidays. Uh, it's a wonderful life needs to be in everyone's Christmas rotation. It is, it is mandatory in my opinion. Sam, I fucking love that this movie's on your list. Yeah, absolutely. I fucking love that this movie is on your list. Yeah. This movie, when when you get when I get to the end, uh, uh, it devastates me. It mm-hmm. devastates me for the exact reason you said about friends. It, this movie is so steeped in friendship and in the importance a one man's life can have on other lives. Much like my favorite Jackie Robinson quote, uh, no life means anything except for the impact it has on other lives. And that's exactly what this film is about. It's all about, it's all about how his life is so important to everyone in his lives around him and how much he means to the people in his life despite him feeling that he means nothing at all. And it is such a great feel-good movie. If you are ever feeling down, this is the, probably, in all honesty, this is probably the exact movie you should be watching. Yeah, I I think one of the reasons that it's so effective in being so optimistic is because it's so effective in being pessimistic. It, It gives you a really good idea of, what uh i can't for the life of me think of the character's name right now but uh but jimmy stewart's character it gives you a really good idea of his childhood what his aspirations are how he wants to see the world how he's a smart kid how he could he has this whole future ahead of him and as we follow him through his life it does not work out the way he's planned uh a bunch of moments for him that seem inconsequential just wind up uh, resulting in him staying in the same old crummy town that he's lived in for his entire life. And by the time he's a man married with the family, he just... He wonders what the hell happened to uh, that optimistic kid that he once was. So I think the setup of his despair and and all of the things that go wrong for him in his life uh, are what makes the conclusion so powerful for me, where he realizes that... Uh, well, as the card says, no man is poor who has friends. It's, it's so true. It, oh, God, yeah. And his name was George Bailey. It was going to bug me. George Bailey, fucking it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm upset that I didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this is such a fantastic pick. I'm fucking loving your list. I want I want to watch like all the movies on your list. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I'm, um, that's the effect that I'm going for. Um, I don't have a lot else to add about It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I, I do think it is best suited to a holiday watch. But if, you, if you're genuinely in need of a pickup, which, let's face it, in, uh, in these times of isolation, I think most people are, it's, it's about the most optimistic movie you could possibly watch in these times. It will restore your faith in humankind if you've lost it. Agreed wholeheartedly. Favorite scene? Um, it, it's the finale. No man is poor who has friends, and I'm a blubbering mess. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm same. I'm I'm yep. like sn- like snot out of my nose, blubbering mess. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. My number thirteen would make for a great double feature, Sam, with Ooh. your number twenty. Shockingly, we did it in episode forty-seven. Is my thirteen is when Harry met Sally. Oh, it would make for a great double feature, wouldn't it? And yes. we did it. And we did do it. This is my number one romantic comedy of all time. Uh, and like I've just mentioned, Sam and I did a double feature where we both uh, watched and reviewed our favorite romantic comedies of all time in episode number 47. 
And for me, that's When Harry Met Sally. Directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron, starring Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, Bruno Kirby, and Carrie Fisher. R.I.P. to both the last two. Mm-hmm. Has a meta score of 76. The plot, Harry and Sally have known each other for years and are very good friends, but they fear sex would ruin the friendship. If you want to hear a deep dive on this, please listen to episode 47. So I'll give you some quick points. Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal are dynamic in this movie. They have incredible chemistry and they make it believable. I love that this movie is actually realistic, which is incredibly rare for a rom-com. There is nothing that really happens in this movie that isn't out of the realm of possibility. There isn't some weird, incredible freak accident that makes these two meet. There isn't some weird, over-the-top comedic thing that splits them apart. This is actually kind of quite, for a rom-com, a very realistic movie. Mm -hmm. And... I absolutely love the dialogue. I love the way they play off each other. I love the dynamic between them and their two best friends, played by Bruno, Carey, uh, Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher. This is Carrie, F- Carrie Fisher is unbelievably great in this film. Uh, outside of her performance as Princess Leia, this is my favorite performance by, by her. And in fact, this would almost rival her performance as Princess Leia because she's actually given more to do in this movie, despite being a supporting female character in a 1980s film uh she actually has uh quite a bit to do and it's so much fun the friendships are awesome the songs by harry connick jr are amazing i just love this movie it makes me feel good it it provides me with such laughs no gut busting knee slapping laughs just good hearty chuckles and an absolute really fun movie to watch yeah, this is one that I hadn't seen before we did the double feature. I know it was one you had wanted to make me watch for a while, and it definitely delivered. I, I'm wary in general of the rom-com genre. I, there are very few that uh, wind up being great or, or, or frankly wind up being good, in my opinion. I agree. Uh, when Harry Met Sally uh, exceeded about all of my expectations, it, it it's almost a little bit sad to me that a movie like this was made so long ago and people making rom-coms haven't figured out how to make good movies in the years since it it makes me sad that this movie uh i almost saw it 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 recontextualized every rom-com i've seen since this movie because i'm like man this this format has so much potential and the writing can be biting and the relationship can be uh can be interesting and the characters can be well written what the hell happened along the way to make the genre be in the state that it's in currently It, it it makes me sad honestly because when harry met sally uh really uh really surprised me i, I kind of rolled my eyes because i knew it was this iconic romantic movie uh, and it blew me away i i was really impressed with the, how well written uh, all the characters are and how well written all the dialogue is yeah i i fucking love that you say that but i i i, I just want to touch on something you just said i think romantic comedies oh god i i just lost my train of thought Romantic comedies provide such an incredible, like such an incredible opportunity to make a great film. And it's so sad to see something made in 1990, like When Harry Met Sally, and it's so incredibly rare that it was even approached by another one. And 
it's like when when a romantic comedy isn't done right, it makes me angry and like it it they fly up to the top of my most hated list of the year. <laughs> and when it's done well, it elevates the movie to another level in my opinion. Like I've said before, out of all the romantic comedies I've seen recently, none of them really stand out until I saw Set It Up on Netflix a couple years ago. Right. And I was watching it. I was like, fuck, I'm like, this is so much better than it should be. And that's because it was well-written and mostly realistic and with great dialogue. And it is, I agree, it's so sad to see something this old that couldn't be replicated when Hollywood is all about replicating something that works. Yeah, it, they really haven't figured out the, the formula, it, it turns out, uh, all these years later. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Uh, the Like I said, if you really want to dive into When Harry Met Sally, it's in episode 47. My favorite scene is the double phone call in bed after Harry and Sally call their best friends at the same time. I'll just leave it at that because that could spoil something. I don't know, man. I the the I'll have what she's having is uh, is pretty good. Well, that's a great line. That whole yeah. scene. That whole scene is okay. Oh man. It it. Well, I shouldn't say it's okay. That that scene is great, but the yeah. the double phone call scene is one of my favorite scenes. I I had a, good one too. I had a really hard time picking my favorite scene because I kind of just love all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the one we haven't been talking about favorite quote, but one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes from this movie is a quote that I will randomly throw it at times. It's hard to find a time to do it. But when I do it, and if anybody ever gets it, it just makes my day. And it's hard to incorporate into everyday talking, but it's <laughs> it's from the scene when they're playing Pictionary. And when Harry, Harry Bruno Kirby is trying to guess, and he says, baby fish mouth. And he... <laughs> I can't remember how it comes, but <laughs> it's. I think the clue for the thing is saying, and uh, Bruno Kirby doesn't agree that that was a baby. Uh, the the actual thing is baby talk, and Bruno mm. Kirby's like baby talk. That's not a saying. And Harry immediately says, "Well, baby fish mouth is sweeping the nation." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I'm. I've- I'm not going to lie. I've seen the movie and I probably wouldn't have gotten mad if you said that to me. I know. And that's what it is. Like if I ever say it and somebody gets that reference, they instantly become my best friend. (laughs) Okay, Sam, you're number 12. Uh, If you were excited about, uh, you're excited about it's a wonderful life as my number 13. I, I imagine you'll be rather excited about this one too. This is a movie that, uh, in the early days of our friendship before the podcast, you introduced to me. <gasps> we have since done a podcast episode on it back in episode 74. Uh, it is the 1998 <gasps> film Life is Beautiful. Oh, <laughs> that honestly makes me happy that a movie I introduce you to yeah. is your number 12 favorite movie. No, Manny introduced me to this film. I've told the story several times, of course, oh. of uh, when I got my wisdom teeth out. He provided me with a list of no fewer than 40 movies for me to watch while uh, <laughs> while incapacitated. I think this was the first one I watched. I don't think I appreciated it fully the first time because I was on a lot of drugs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Life is Beautiful, directed by Roberto Benigni, written by Roberto Benigni and Vincenzo Cerami. Nailed it. Uh, also starring Roberto Benigni, of course. 
at a criminally underrated oh. uh, meta score of 59. That's disgusting. Uh, when an open-minded Jewish librarian and his son become victims of the Holocaust, he uses a perfect mixture of will, humor, and imagination to protect his son from the dangers around the camp. Um, this, like I said, the meta score is basically the measuring stick for bad meta scores. If if I see a movie that's bad that has a meta score around 59, I'll say, well, I guess I guess it's better than Life Is Beautiful because it's. I'm shocked at how low this is. Um, we've talked about this in episode 74, but I think the source of that low rating is probably uh, the controversy that the, this movie sparks. Yeah, the subject uh, it matter. Is a, it is it is a comedy. Yes, thank you. The subject matter it is a comedy about. Um, a concentration camp and it's uh, it, it, it can be difficult to reconcile those two things for sure but I think uh, anybody who watches this movie should at least be able to note that this movie is not making light of the Holocaust in any way shape or form Far from. Uh, it's quite the opposite it's, it's about a man trying to shield his son from the horrors of it um, I, I think th- there's a moment in this movie where uh, the two of them come across a mass grave and uh, <clears throat> Roberto Benigni's character kind of steers them in the other direction while his son's asleep. Um, I think the inclusion of that sort of scene was meant to <laughs> show the impact of, hey, th- this is this fun, fantastical land that he's created for his son. It's this fun little game, and there's a lot of slapstick comedic moments that are excellent, but it- it's real life, and it- it's super serious. Um it, the the IMDb synopsis puts it really well. It's the perfect mixture of will, humor, imagination. Um, in my opinion, this is best watched in the original Italian with subtitles. Hundred percent agree. To preserve the brilliant performance of Roberto Benigni, he did win Best Actor for this this year, and uh, it's well deserved. Even as somebody who I, I don't speak Italian, I know you don't speak Italian. Um, it, it's it's a brilliant performance. It's energetic. It's optimistic. Um, it's another movie that, in my opinion, even though it takes place in a concentration camp about one of the worst places in human history, you can find yourself. Um, it it it's, uh, it will restore your faith in humankind. In my opinion, it's an optimistic, happy movie. Uh, when all is said and done, um, it, it's one that I. Manny, I am so thankful for you introducing me to this movie because it uh, it connected with me in ways I didn't anticipate it. I've I think I've seen it three times now, um, and it, it's already um, one of my all time favorites. Every time we find issues to talk about this movie, I, uh, I I find more things to like about it. Oh, dude, I I'm I'm so incredibly happy right now. <laughs> I knew you would be. I yeah, knew you would be. It's it just it on it. It yeah, that's the only word I can use to describe it. It honestly makes me, it makes me so happy that I could, uh, I could recommend a movie that resonated so much with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing is, I was as you re- were retelling that story we've told at least five or six times on our podcast. Yeah. I'm surprised you haven't gone back to that list while you're on quarantine. Oh, yeah, true. That's actually a good call. <laughs> I, I should go back way, 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 way back in our Facebook conversation, probably about three, three and a half years now. Yeah. And and uh, and figure out some of those other movies. I think we've gone, you and I have gone back at least once or twice and seen how many of those movies I've watched now. And you forced me to watch quite a bit of them. I know LA Confidential was on there and we yep. just crossed that one off. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> the, the, there's the, the legendary list is getting shorter by the day. Yes. If you do, if you do revisit the list, like copy and paste it and, and let me take a look at it again. 
Yeah, sure, sure. Or I'll take a look back and see which ones you've seen. Um, your favorite scene, Sam? Uh, my my favorite scene, I can't remember what I said it was in episode 74. I would probably say now. It, there's a scene where um, one of the German guards at the, at the camp is barking instructions at them, and uh, Roberto Benigni is trying to... Tra- he, tra- he, he, cl- he claims to be able to speak German, <laughs> even though he can't. And he's, he's translating for his son, and he's making up all these rules to this fantastical game. <laughs> and as somebody who speaks German myself, I can understand the guard, and he's talking about like anybody who runs is getting shot in the back of the head, and he's saying all these horrible things to these people. Uh, and R- Roberto Benigni's character is just translating. He's just being light, keeping it... Keeping it uh, keeping the levity in the room and uh yeah it's it's a very hopeful scene it's a very hopeful movie it's very funny in spite of all the darkness in it um this is a movie that will take you through uh basically every emotion a human being can experience uh it's it's marvelous wow hold on so you're there okay i thought you had a oh yeah okay i'm off so now I don't feel so bad about having an 80 meta score for this part of my list because the 59 for that one, which is obscenely low, dragged me down a bit. That's obscenely low. Yeah. Uh, all right. My number 12 is a movie that you and I discussed in episode 61 of the Samuel Manuel movie podcast. That is the – oh, shit. I forgot the year. I think 2000. Hold on. Give me one sec. Uh, Jeopardy music. I was right. Year 2000. uh, Turn of the century film, Almost Famous. Oh, okay. Uh, Written and directed by Cameron Crowe, starring Billy Crudup, Patrick Fugit, Kate Hudson, and Francis McDermott. Has a meta score of 90. (laughs) The plot, a high school boy is given the chance to write a story for Rolling Stone magazine about an up-and-coming rock band as he accompanies them on their concert tour. This movie really resonates with me, and I think it resonated with me be- so much because Patrick Fugit plays uh, a kind of uh, a little bit of a social, I, I don't want to call him a social outcast, he's a bit of a nerd. Uh, and by a bit of a nerd, he's a real nerd. He's a huge nerd, but he's a music nerd. And also, he has a huge crush, and I know exactly what that feels like. Because I was a huge nerd in school and in high school, but I was a I was a movie nerd and a comic book. I was a I was a closet comic book nerd. I didn't tell people I was into comic books because you weren't out in high school. Sure wasn't. No. Sure wasn't. <laughs> and I I have I've had numerous crushes and never had never had the nuts to ever tell any of them that I had feelings for them. And this movie really plays up and really showcases you what it's like to have a super huge crush and or and or technically be in love with somebody. And I think that's one of the reasons that this movie means so much to me. Also, it's a brilliantly made film. And it's so sad that Cameron Crowe just hasn't been able to really live up to this movie since then. He had a couple of really good ones before that that you and I will be uh, one of them for we'll be talking about very soon, and that's Jerry Maguire. Um, the music in this movie is so great; it really captures that late '70s rock that was starting to die out as disco and the '80s were starting to creep in. I love Billy Crudup in this movie. I I thought at the time, this is the movie that's finally going to launch him to become a bona fide movie star. It didn't happen. 
I believe this movie was criminally overlooked that year at the Academy Awards. This also, one of the hard parts about this movie for me is Kate Hudson's performance because she's so fucking good and she's yet to do anything that anywhere comes remotely close to this movie. She is a horrible actress most of the time in everything else she's in and it's so sad because she is unbelievable in this movie as Penny Lane. And of course we have to shed a little light on the always amazing Frances McDormand. Mm-hmm. I I love this movie. Again, I won't waste too much time talking about it because there is a whole episode on it. Go back and listen to episode 61, and then you can hear Sam's in-depth thoughts as well. Sam, what do you think of Almost Famous? Uh, yeah, point form, I would say I agree with just about everything that you say. Uh, Frances McDormand as the uh, stern but loving mother. Um, I, I love how her character wasn't just completely villainized it would have been so easy to write a story about um a kid running away from home uh from the from a bad family situation uh to go find a new surrogate family but this movie i mean it is sort of that but his home life is quite good as well and i i like how they balanced that um and francis mcdormand's loving nature as well i like how they didn't just completely villainize her character it was a sort of a, a neat twist yeah um, I, I, I love the camaraderie that is, uh, discovered throughout this movie, the hijinks that they wind up getting into, um, throughout, um, there, there's a number of good scenes. I'm sure you and I are going to have the same favorite scene for this one, even though I don't oh. have one listed. It's, it's the scene from this movie. Yes. Um, it, it, it's a scene that just communicates that brotherhood and that, uh, that unconditional friendship and it's it's a very emotional scene and it also communicates the power of music as a card carrying music nerd myself i I was big time into this movie i was really happy when you uh recommended it as one that we should do for an episode and was happy to oblige um yeah i i don't think i have much else to say that i didn't already say in our episode but yeah excellent excellent film awesome so i'll just cap it off by saying my favorite scene is the one that he's referring to and that's the tiny dancer scene on the bus which is a it's it's probably the scene that this movie is famous for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and off the top of my head, probably, in my opinion, one of my top five diegetic m- music scenes in film. Yeah, I, I, I can't think of any uh, any other competition at the moment. I would, have to, I would have to sit down and construct a list, but I would I, say so. I, th- I, I think for you, your number one would be Scotty Doesn't Know. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you may be kidding, but also maybe. <laughs> you might be right. Uh, Reservoir Dog is another good one. Oh, yeah. Fuck. That would be yep. a very hard list to make for reals. Yeah. Fuck. That, I don't think that has enough content in it to be a full episode, but it might be a fun exercise. Well, if we did a top 10, it would probably make a good enough episode. Who knows? That's true. Okay. I don't, oh, God. That would be so hard. There'd be so many be- we'd forget. Okay. Anyways. Exactly. Well, we're here. We're at the end of this episode. It's only 10 to 1 where I am in Calgary right now. <laughs> yeah, we're only two and a half hours in. We got one more, two more movies to talk about. One more. Sam? Uh, so this uh, is a movie that once upon a time I actually called my favorite movie. Uh, it has since slipped all the way down to number 11, but it is still one that is near and dear to me. It is still one that I can enjoy time and time again. Uh, it is the 1994 Best Picture winner. Forrest Gump. What? Yeah. 
Uh, it is directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Eric Roth, Metascore of 82. Uh, the presidencies of Kennedy and Johnson, the events of Vietnam, Watergate, and other historical events unfold through the perspective of an, of an Alabama man with an IQ of 75 whose only desire is to be reunited with his childhood sweetheart. Uh, so I was just talking about... Uh, Life is beautiful, taking you through a range of emotions. This is another one, I think. What I appreciate most about it is that it just gives you a little bit of everything. Uh, if you want your laugh-out-loud funny moments, in my opinion, there's a, an abundance of those in this movie, I, I, not the least of which uh, come from Tom Hanks himself, who gives a, a characteristically spectacular performance. Um, I love uh, that it can also take you the complete opposite direction. It has a number of tear-jerking moments, um, a number of deaths that really shake Forrest uh, to his core uh, that are that hit hard for me every time. I love the, the side characters, the performances of Gary Sinise and Robin Wright uh, are both really good in my opinion. Um, this is a movie about destiny and a man trying to find his place in the world. Uh, this is a movie that I always debate my dad about actually, cause my dad doesn't like this movie <laughs> and uh, I always have to fight him on this. Uh, I shouldn't say that he doesn't like it. Uh, he just says that he doesn't get it. Uh, doesn't, doesn't get the, get the appeal, I guess. I always say that it's a, a movie about destiny and um, in, in the end, again, I'm going to try not to spoil this, even though it's a relatively old movie. Um, he, he, he finds his place in the world and it, through the course of this movie, we see him try to be a football player. We try, we see him try to be a businessman, a fishing boat captain, a soldier. Uh, we see him go through uh, a variety of different uh, things that he winds up being quite good at. But in the end, uh, he, he, you know, what he's suited for is fatherhood, and he, he enjoys being a dad. And something about that has uh, has really touched me uh, for for years and years and years now. Um, there is, um, I, I believe, uh, Tom Hanks won the Oscar for this one, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, in my opinion, uh, even though it's an incredibly strong year for film, which we'll get into, wink, wink. Hmm. Um, in my opinion, he, uh, he's well-deserving of the Oscar. Uh, his delivery of a number of lines really affect me and resonate with me. His, I, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Uh, I always love that quote. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> anything you want to add real quick? I, I know that I know that this movie uh, upsets you, but I have to imagine again. I don't want to really say why I know it upsets you, even though you <laughs> and I both know why it upsets you. <laughs> but do you think that fact aside, um, do you, do you think this is a good movie? Like, given the lineup that it was up against that year for Best Picture, it arguably should not have won. Well, frankly, it shouldn't have won. Uh, this is. My favorite movie, or my list of favorite movies, not the list of best movies. Yeah. So, frankly, there were better constructed movies that year. But do you think that this movie has a lot to offer? Am I am I just grasping at straws here? No, not at all. This movie definitely does. There's a there there's a reason why it won. Mm. Is is Forrest Gump's win as big of a travesty as say Shakespeare in Love? No, it's not no. on the same level. But in my opinion, Forrest Gump is should have probably been the bronze medal winner that year. Yeah. Something that we're definitely going to discuss. We're farther away from this year than I anticipated. This is something rough estimation. We're probably going to be looking at getting into this year, probably early 2021, looking yeah. at our podcast schedule the way we have it mapped out. We'll see. Should be around there. But anyways, it's this is... 
this pick actually completely slipped my mind and I know Mm -hmm. how much you love this movie and I completely forgot about it. I had a lot of other ones on my mind that uh, I'm pretty sure uh, I'll hear you utter next week. This movie is not undeserving of the praise you have. I'm really looking forward to rewatching this movie because of my um, bitterness towards it. Yeah, that's a good word. I, I was I was like in my mind I had the word disdain, but that's not <laughs> true because I don't hate this movie. I'm just you hate what this movie did. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. And but I'm very excited to rewatch it. I've been holding off on rewatching it, but I I think I don't think I'm going to be able to hold off for as long as I now look because I, I was literally just looking at our podcast schedule and seeing <laughs> what other things we have that are going to be before that. So it's I'm looking at close to a year still before I get to see this again. I don't think I'm going to wait that long. I think I'm going to probably check this out fairly, fairly soon. And yeah, it's, it's a great pick by you. I won't dive too much into the more, politics of it. Well, that and some other things that you said during it. Cause it's, I I'm, I'm not, I'm the last thing I want to do is shit on a movie that you have. Uh, that you have rated this high, and I wasn't gonna shit on it. I just you said some yeah. things that I think I might want to disagree with, but I'm not here. To, I don't want to disagree. I want to. I want to. This this is all about positivity. And sure. I am excited to rewatch this movie. There's so much to like. I agree. Gary Sinise is fucking superb, and unfortunately for him, he was in a like that. Oh God, I'm just I'm looking at it right now. That was just stacked. That that section the best supporting actor race that year as well and there's a lot to like in this movie i'm really excited to revisit it and to give it a fair chance because now now where i am now in my life i can give this movie a fair chance i've never hated this movie i just hated what happened with this movie for sure um my favorite scene uh i can't say I'm going to try not to spoil it. I can't say who it is, but there's a burial at the end of the movie uh, where Tom Hanks just acts. And it's one of my favorite Tom Hanks scenes of all time. Um, We agreed not to do a favorite quote, uh, but I I have to read this quote from the scene. Do it. I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental like on a breeze, but I think maybe it's both. Maybe both is happening at the same time. I miss you. If there's anything you need, I won't be far away. And again, I'm a blubbering mess. I just <laughs> uh, Tom Hanks is is acting uh, in general is just incredible. This is one of my favorite performances of his. He's uh, he's spectacular. Did it make our Tom Hanks Hall of Fame? It must have. Yeah, <laughs> of course it, it must have. Of course it did. Of course yeah. it did. Awesome. So that's it. That's my that's my twenty through eleven. Uh, but we're not done yet. Manny has but one more. I have one more, and this is a movie from 2015 that you and I discussed in episode 82, and that's Sicario. All right. Directed by Denis Villeneuve, written by Taylor Sheridan, starring Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, and Josh Brolin, has a Metascore of 82. Plot, an idealistic FBI agent is enlisted by a government task force to aid in the escalating war against drugs at the border area between the U.S. and Mexico. 
If you want to hear our in-depth review and thoughts on this, I implore you to listen to episode 82 because I and Sam gush about this movie for over an hour. And (laughs) then we talk about the sequel, Day of the Soldado, which I enjoyed, but it just can't measure up to the genius that is Sicario. I love this movie because of the plot. I love this movie because of the cinematography. I love this movie because of the score. I love everything about this movie. As I watch this movie again and again and again and again and again, I love it more and more every time I watch it. Emily Blunt is great in it. Del Toro is superb in it. And Josh Brolin adds this little bit of comedy into it. More like sarcasm and wit that really is like that little bit of spice you get in a dish that just makes it chef kiss perfect. This movie is an absolute joy to watch, and much like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, this is not a movie you can have on in the background if you're watching it for the first time. You need to pay attention to this film because the pacing and the way that this movie is set up and the way it builds tension is a masterclass in filmmaking, with, of course, the highlight being the ever-present and probably will eventually, as time goes on, go down in history as one of the greatest constructed scenes in history, and that's the border crossing scene. Mm-hmm. Sam and I talk about it ad nauseum in the episode. You will probably hear me talk about the border crossing scene from this movie again and again and again as we continue to, as we continue to <clears throat> do these podcasts because I can't stress enough how incredibly great that scene is. Um... Yeah, I, I, I really don't need to spend so much time because we already dedicated a whole episode to this film. Sam, Sicario. Yeah, uh, everything that you just said is completely accurate. The border crossing scene is going to go down as uh, one of those scenes that, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I I would hesitate to put anything on this level. But I, I mentioned recently about how the Godfather baptism scene is played in, uh, in is played in film classes just for any reason you could possibly want. Like if you want to learn how to edit, watch the Godfather baptism scene uh, or just anything like that. I think the Sicario border crossing scene is technically just on the same level. It, it's technically just what you should be doing as a filmmaker. It, every every shot is inserted with purpose. Uh, every every cut has a reason. Uh, it's, it's the writing of the scene itself is, uh, is foreshadowed and set up for several different scenes. Like just so far in advance, they start setting up this scene and the danger that you're going to start feeling in this scene. The, the construction of the movie as a whole around this centerpiece, uh, is, is masterful. And Denis Villeneuve, we've talked about a lot. He is one of both of our favorites. I think one of the modern masters working at it right now. Uh, one of the one of the new masters. Uh, Sakari Hill is one that uh, I own. It's one that I'm going to continue to rewatch, and it's one that I'm going to continue to gush about again and again. Uh, between Emily Blunt and Benicio del Toro, uh, spectacular performances at the helm, and yeah, Sicario is I think a modern classic already. I agree. Favorite scene, obviously the border crossing scene. Easy peas. Easy peas. That <laughs> wraps up the first half of Sam and I's top 20 of all time. Long episode. I appreciate all of you that stuck through it. We're 
kind of creeping in. Let me take a quick peek here because I was taking a peek. We are now, uh, yeah, this is now the bronze medal winner in longest episode ever. Oh, God. Oh, man. I can't believe people are going to listen to this. I know. I know. And honestly, <laughs> hey, we... uh, message to the listener. If you're currently hearing my voice, thank you. Yes. I don't know if you can hear how tired both of us are, but thank you for being here. Yes. We much appreciate it. We really appreciate it. And in fact, if Sam and I hadn't been rushing through probably the last two or three of our picks, we easily would have made this the longest episode of all time. I, I'm going to predict that next week is the longest. Yeah, and I think probably next week we should probably try and meet up a little bit earlier and not blabber on and probably tell jokes for half an hour. Yeah, well, it's not like I have to be up early for work now, right? Yeah, I do. I have to <laughs> oh, be at work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to be up in about five and a half hours. You're you're a you're a trooper, Manny. You're I am. So let's wrap this up. Uh, social media, you know where to find us. That's good enough. Sam, what's going on next week? You know what it is. It's the top ten. We did twenty through eleven. We're not going to blue ball you now. It's uh, it's ten through one. Wicked episode one hundred next week for the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast. I'm Manny Manuel. Our top twenty is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I'm Sam Reimer. Adios. <laughs>